Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having another gas with Rory Sutherland, one of Adlan's favourite thought leaders. We caught up at the beginning of the 2020 lockdown to assess where things were going, and so I thought it would be good for us to catch up again as we unwind the lockdown to assess where we've been. Uh, you've gone very quiet suddenly. Yes, that's because I moved away oh, from sorry. my microphone. Sorry. So you should, and you do a lot of broadcasting. You should look into one of these. This is a Shure SM7B, in my opinion, the greatest uh, podcasting and recording and voiceover microphone in the world. It's a USB one, is it? It's not, but you, if you get a cheap interface to plug into it, you can, you know, put go between your computer and the microphone. Oh, so so it uses the, those big plug things. Um, what um, SM7B is it? Yeah. Because I've got the MV81, which is a mobile phone add-on, which is a very good microphone. Yeah. And I've also got a Rode uh, NT, whatever it is, the uh, with a USB thing. Yeah, those are very good as well. Um, which is which I have to say is pretty good. Weirdly Australian, although you assume it's Scandinavian because it's got that weird O with a slash through it. Do you think that's uh, a kind of branding idea? If you put like a sort of an umlaut or something like that, it'll yeah, seem, yeah. I think that may be right. Yeah, I mean, you know. Uh, being, I suppose, explicitly German in sort of audio or engineering terms, sure are German as well, I think, aren't they? I, I mean, I would love to say yes, but I've not fact-checked it. So, mm. But I know Neumann. Neumann are the best, the best microphone company in the world by many people's reckoning. Neumann, yes. And you know, everything there is produced in this kind of, as if you're making a nuclear bomb, that level of, yeah. you know, efficiency and rigor. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I should uh, probably, uh, you know, before we before we go flying off into the, the hills on all kinds of things. Uh, say thanks for coming back on because uh, we did speak in May last year when all of this was still quite novel. Um, yeah, that's right, yeah. And making predictions. I should have, before we came on, I remember watching over yours and you made a number of predictions. I might even have one edited in here that came to fruition. One of them was you said, I think you could make an argument that you should do variable lockdowns, geographically varied lockdowns. You know, you put Kent in for a bit of this and Liverpool in for a bit of that. And that, of course, became the tier system. Yes, I, I mean, uh, ultimately, it seems that, you know, the only solution which seems to have worked now with a third lockdown is basically shutting everything down. And it probably is. Um, I mean, the interesting thing is that there doesn't seem to be an area that's escaped completely, if you exclude sort of things like, I guess, the Outer Hebrides and uh, Orkney and so forth, um, most reasonably populous non-insular areas, you know, Cornwall had a very, very, um, a patch where there was almost no COVID in Cornwall, but it's equally had sudden bouts where it's actually quite severe. So, um, you know, and likewise, London had it worse to begin with and then had a period where London was unbelievably light and then London surged again. So it's, it's, it's incredibly, um, I think the word is stochastic. You know, it, you, you know we, what's interesting is that the complete failure of both science and anybody else for that matter to construct an entirely explanatory narrative of how it spreads. And I think the reason for that is the spread is very fat-tailed which is that some events, for reasons we don't fully understand, almost certainly indoor events, almost certainly unmasked, I think that's probably fair, maybe those involving singing or speaking very loudly, but a certain proportion of events seem to account for a disproportionately high proportion of the spread. 
So uh, um, football matches where everyone's cheering, uh, but they're outdoors. Well, they're, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I think I think they're risky being, um, but I don't think they're at risk of being the mega spreading events necessarily that an in, a, an equivalent indoor event would be. Yeah, so having twenty thousand um, people at the arena at <coughs> a concert. Yeah, all singing along. That would probably be a bit of a disaster combined with a buffet. You know, that's. Yeah. The, I, I mean, it's quite interesting to theorise what would be the worst spreading event. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, the other thing is there are really complex factors at work. Like, for example, our breath and the droplets from our breath probably aerosolize in a completely different way depending on what we're doing. So singing might be a lot worse than speaking or something. Yeah. Um, but it's a, weird, it's a weird one, isn't it? Yes, and, and like you say, uh, you were angling at, we're trying to construct a, a satisfying narrative out of what's happened. And we are unable to do so. And I've noticed one of the effects of that being that we are not sure at any point who we're supposed to be angry at. Are we supposed to be angry at the general public, yeah. our leaders, the virus itself? Uh, you know, if the lockdown is too strict, we have... We, are annoyed at that. If, it, if the case is spread, we say you should have locked down sooner. So we can't tell who the heroes or the villains are. No, and of course you don't know. The other problem is, is you don't know the parallel universe in which decisions were different. Yes. I mean, the first lockdown, my hunch was that, first of all, a lot of people had already self-isolated two or three weeks before. I had actually, and I'm only 55. I'd effectively stopped going into the office because my logic was, well, I don't need to go into the office, so why contribute to a risk by doing something I don't need to do? I had quite a lot of sort of overseas Zoom calls, so there's no point in going to the office to do those. And so, you know, for several weeks earlier, quite a lot of the vulnerable population had already isolated. Um, and if you'd imposed lockdown too rapidly, by the time lockdown happened, everybody kind of knew it was going to happen. Now, if you'd imposed lockdown overnight and unexpectedly, there would have been a load of people who are sort of separated from their wives and children. There would have been people, you know, who are 400 miles away from their parents. And yeah. what might have happened is for the first three days, a load of people would have broken the rules, to, you know, to get home or to, you know, go somewhere. I mean, quarter of a million people left London before lockdown. So there was a kind of exodus, I think, before, before that. And so if you'd imposed it too rapidly and unexpectedly, you might not have been able to impose the rules because for you know, a million people, the rules would have seemed impossible. So you know, the fact that you built up to it and gave people time to prepare wasn't entirely negative. Hmm. And also, I mean, everybody's trying to construct this thing, you know, that countries run by female heads of state. Well, we run by a female head of state, technically. But, um, you know... Countries with female prime ministers did better. They were all trying to construct these kind of spurious correlations. Now, I'm not saying that female prime ministers aren't better in general, but I mean, Belgium, which has the highest fatality rate per head in the world, has a female prime minister or whatever, whatever they are. It's a monarchy, isn't it, Belgium? Um, so um, <clears throat> I find it very interesting because everybody's kind of trained by the education system to, to look for and adhere to these kind of... Uh, very simplistic explanations, you know. Yeah, a line everything of is causal reasoning. A, very straight, single thing causes single thing, which leads to single thing. Yes. And our brains aren't very good with complexity. We're not very good with things which are exponential and nonlinear, and we're not very good with things which are just messy. And one of the interesting things you could theorize here is that lots of things, not just COVID, but lots of things like um, wealth inequality. Okay. 
are the product of similarly messy and often non-linear factors. But we just have disciplines like economics, which pretend they're not. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yes. maybe, I mean, maybe a, lo- a far larger part of the world uh, uh, of life is just fucked up and random <laughs> to, yeah. to, create, uh, to create a kind of fuar, um, to create a kind of acronym, okay? Much more of it is actually li- like COVID than we like to admit. It's yeah. not that COVID's the anomaly, it's that we don't yet know how to pretend that COVID is simple. Yeah, but of course, uh, if people feel uh, as if the there, if people feel like there isn't a straightforward line of causal reasoning through things, then it tends to invoke a bit of nihilism, like, well, nothing actually causes anything and nothing leads to anything, so what's the point of trying in any kind of direction? No, I think, I think what you say there is that when you don't fully know what's going on, this is the Seam Taleb's point, which is... Um, it's all what we're doing is we're teaching people to live in a world they pretend to understand. Yeah. And actually, what the seems point is, what you need to do is teach people to survive in circumstances they don't fully understand. And so he was a very early lockdown and mask advocate because he just argued for the precautionary principle with anything that's systemic and uh, exponential, uh, you go fast and you go hard. Yes. Yes. And. Um, um... But it, it is very interesting that because, you know, I mean, economics essentially is, I think it's a little like those narratives like countries with female prime ministers are doing better or, um, you know, various things like that. I mean, one interesting thing now is that we will go into better weather, hopefully with a low rate. And I don't know if you close down the airports, can you eradicate this thing entirely? Probably not. I mean, coronaviruses seem to be, become fairly endemic. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it's possible that the summer will actually be fairly low and that, that you could get it low enough so that local interventions might be enough, just combined with ferociously high levels of random testing, I guess. Now, I, I can't jump off uh, a conversation about how nothing or things like this aren't wholly predictable and then ask you to make a prediction, but I'm going to do it anyway. And uh, well, do you think this year, do you expect it to have a similar shape to last year whereby, you know, it tapers off in the springtime. And as you say, because of vaccinations and the early lockdown, it won't be, it's the same temporally. It won't be the same in May as it was last year. But do you think it's still going to be dominating the narrative until the end of the year? We still don't know uh, what effect the vaccine has on transmission as distinct from, um, uh, uh, I think we know that the vaccines do a very good job at stopping people getting the worst of it. Which is the thing that kills people. Which is the thing that kills people. we probably know, um, uh, you know, we probably know that it also reduces the risk of contain, uh, of people catching it, uh, or at least developing symptoms. Whether that necessarily means that it, it probably means that you don't get so many super spreaders, uh, hopefully, because there seem to be these freakish people with a very very high viral load. Wow. I mean, it's very interesting when you think about it. I've always been the kind of person who, when I get a bad cold or flu, I take a day off work right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm fairly susceptible to bugs. But I've always noticed that, you know, uh, my father-in-law, a friend of mine who I was in a house share with, I don't think he ever took a day off ill in four four years. Mm. And there were two reasons for that. He didn't seem to get visibly ill, or if he did, he didn't seem to get symptoms to the same extent that I would have done. But secondly, if he did get symptoms, he'd also struggle into work in a way that I wouldn't. Mm. And I've often wondered, you know, I mean, 
If we actually had studied the spread of colds, of course, colds weren't fatal, they're a mild inconvenience. But if we'd studied how colds spread and whether certain people, you know, the kind of person who struggles into the office, um, you know, there was an ad for Lemsip, I think, a few years ago, which more or less suggested you should man up and go to work with the aid of Lemsip. And I always thought, well, that's quite good economic advice, but it's not very good epidemiological advice. Yes, and now Um, uh, that kind of advice would be roundly criticised, wouldn't it, in the current climate? Well, I was always very unnerved because a few of the supermarkets started docking people pay for taking more than a certain number of sick days. Wow. And I thought it was unfair because, you know, by the luck of of averages, some people just get ill more than others. Uh, you know, for example, when my kids first went to primary school, I just got ill a hell of a lot because they were bringing, you know, a primary school is kind of petri dish. And the kids would just bring home some new thing every day. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, the last thing I want is a food supermarket pressurizing people financially to go, in, go into a food handling job. Yes. Where, you know, rather than taking the sixth sick day of 2019 or something. Yeah. And the other, the other one that's really interesting, which is, I think, a, a case where actual maths and ethics crash and collide. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Probably the best group to vaccinate first would have been 23-year-olds. Yes, so Nicholas Christakis said something similar. He said, we're vaccinating people at the end of the transmission chain mm-hmm. first. So what you... Now, it's not really morally acceptable. The problem with that is that would cause a few unnecessary deaths among the elderly. Possibly fewer, but people who could have been vaccinated would have died. Yes. Okay. And the argument would have been, so I see my grandmother had to die so that some 23-year-old could get off his tits at a rave in Manchester, right? Yeah. yeah. It's not a very easy argument to make. <laughs> um, and Christakis is great. His book, Apollo's Arrow, I think, and he's mentioned this in various cases. Um, uh, my, one, my one contribution, by the way, which was half humorous but half serious, was that wearing a mask feels a lot less weird if you're also wearing a hat. Right. So I made a little film about that where I just made the point that going around with only a mask on feels really, really strange. And there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, if I asked you to go out um, in, um, you know, if I asked you to go out in, okay, let's say that for some bizarre reason, men wearing suspenders and high heels, okay, yeah. somehow diminished the transmission of some disease. You can argue rationally as much as you like for this mode of dress, but it's still going to feel really weird, isn't it, right? Yes. Okay, right. if you had to go out on the streets dressed like that, you wouldn't go, um, well, normally this would feel completely transgressive and wrong, but thankfully I have a reason and therefore I don't feel remotely weird. And my discovery was that if you wear a mask with a hat, you feel a bit like a bandido. And for some reason, it feels completely normal. Whereas if you wear a mask without a hat, the mask feels particularly incommodious. And I don't know why this is entirely. It could just be, you know, some... Could just be an imagery thing. Yeah. You know, that mask with hat makes you feel like, you know, a bank robber in an ealing comedy or, you know, whatever. Um, Whereas mask on its own feels weird. But, But I always thought that was my one tiny contribution. The other thing is, behavioural science hasn't done brilliantly well uh, under lockdown. Um, it, it's probably fair to say, but equally, it's not quite fair to blame behavioural scientists because we, don't, we didn't really know from science what the behaviours were. So am I right in understanding that what you're saying there is um, the behavioural science 
uh, hasn't accurately predicted what's happened? Well, no. no it, the, my point is that we, we were at a disadvantage, in fairness. I, when I say we, I'm not a behavioural scientist. I'm an amateur uh, impresario. Yeah. But in defence of the people in the kind of behavioural science community, first of all, at the beginning, wash your hands. Um, I don't know why Fauci and people were anti-mask for so long. There's a kind of narrative which is we wanted to preserve mask supplies for essential workers. Mm -hmm. But there was this weird belief that masks might be counterproductive, which is always possible, but it struck me as, you know, fairly commonsensical that masks would do more good than harm or, or at least would do no harm. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but, yeah. Right. Um, and then we got obsessed about what kind of mask. Well, uh, you know... My friend Catherine Clace, who is actually a proper academic, she's a nephrologist at, um, uh, in Hamilton uh, in Ontario and an and, and, and academic nephrologist as well. Yeah. And she, she did a lot of work on cloth masks showing that they don't work quite as well as an N95, but they do work. Um, and it, no, it interested me, but I mean, the problem is, is that behavioral science only works if you know what the desired behavior is. Yes. And it's worth noting that, you know, the desired behavior, if you're doing commercial behavior, behavioral sciences, buy the product, okay, broadly speaking. Uh, the desired behavior in smoking is quit smoking, right? Um, <coughs> the one behavior which I thought we were really slow at, slow at particularly in the summer, uh, was ventilation. I, see, I thought it seemed fairly self-evident that, um, that ventilation... Since there were so few cases of outdoor transmission, encouraging people to open their windows. Oh, in fact, that there wasn't even a single government advert saying open your windows. It, it, it came, but it came in kind of September. I wrote about it in The Spectator in something like June, July. Yeah. And they didn't really... Now, okay, I mean, it's easy to write an article in The Spectator. It's not so easy to get, you know, scientific approval for a yes. widespread mass advertising campaign. So let's give them a bit of a break there. And also people are very nervous about giving advice which is subsequently proved to be wrong. Um, which I think is possibly, you know, a possible, the whole reputation risk thing might be a bit worrying. Yeah. Um, but, but um, uh, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting question, which is whether you should have... Um, ironically imposed stricter rules on people under 40, oddly, for a time, because odd, those were the people at risk of being super spreaders. I don't know. Because Christakis is probably right in network terms that you should vaccinate super spreaders first. And those people are very unlikely. You know, you don't get men. I mean, broadly speaking, once you're over 50, I don't know what you're like because you're in music, hmm. but I don't like crowds anymore, really. And then, and there is no event which is improved by, um, pop, by density. So I, I like garden parties, but I can't stand indoor drinks parties because once you're 55, you can't hear a fucking word anybody's saying. Right. You can't get anything to drink. Uh, you know, you're rubbing up against other people. You can't move from one conversational group to another. Whereas the garden party, I like, I like a party in the garden because you can wander around. You know, if you feel like a bit of a moment of introversion, you can wander off and stand behind a tree. So, you know, yeah, you're more um, Hay Book Festival than Glastonbury, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so actually, funnily enough, I discovered Glyndebourne I'm okay with because I, yeah. I actually had slight conniptions about Glyndebourne, but Glyndebourne is actually, because it's largely outdoors, uh, is gloriously non-crowded, whereas Glastonbury, being at the front at Glastonbury would terrify me. I used to have really weird arguments with my kids because they'd ask to go to concerts and be in the standing area. Yeah. And I'd say, no, no, I'm happy to buy you these seats. Look, you get a seat, you get a chair where you can sit down, right? They go, no, we don't want seats. Yeah. 
the opinion side, yes. why would you want to stand when you can sit? But that's okay? the interesting thing about uh, the the nature of uh, you know the concept of celebrity is you know in the absence of religion we turn ordinary individuals into these kind of demigods. And yeah. You can charge a premium at a concert for being closer to the demigod, even if it's less comfortable. I know, I know. I find it a bit. Um, I find it a bit under actually odd in that I have a bit of crowd aversion because I don't like any kind of collective insanity. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and the good news about that, the bad news is, I've missed a lot of concerts. The good news is, is that had I lived in thirties Germany, I wouldn't have gone to the Nuremberg rally. That's what we're always looking for, right? The yeah. val- validation. You that know, one wouldn't have been a Nazi. <laughs> Yeah, no, no. Uh, it's always very interesting, that, isn't it? Because I always ask of people like, you know, you've got to ask of, say, the Black Lives Matter or the anti-colonialist movement, right? Okay, and I always go, you know, as it happened, at university, I was quite good at Greek prose and Greek verse composition. Okay, and classics. You were at Cambridge, weren't you? Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And, I, and that, that would have been basically the selection criteria for the Indian civil service. Wow. I've always asked that, that question. You know, if you lived at the time of the Raj and you got into, you know, because you were good at composing Greek um, <laughs> verse, yeah. you know, you're, you had a particularly good hexameter or whatever, yeah. uh, you then became chief of police in Mysore. I have to admit, I think I would have thought it was fantastic. <laughs> you, know, I mean, you know, I mean, had, you know, had, you've got to ask yourself that question. It's very easy to say, God, you know, the, you know, it must have been so obvious to these people that what they were doing was, I don't think it was. No. Uh, I don't think it was wrong. Slavery, in fairness, it was obvious to a lot of people that it was wrong before people acted on it. Um, you know, so there were movements like the Quakers were very, very early. I mean, 200 years before the real abolitionist, or certainly 100 years before the abolitionist movement got yeah. going. Um, Quakers, actually, I don't understand why Quakerism doesn't have a revival because it's effectively the 17th century woke movement. Um, But also it's very suited to the 21st century, being sort of thoughtful, mindful. But the other thing is empirically, we all ought to be Quakers because the guys got everything right, really, didn't they? I mean, they were ahead of the curve. Business as well, weren't they? And they also created fantastic brands. Yeah. So you've got, I mean, there's, there's nothing to dislike. Uh, very suited to Zoom meetings, of course. You just put everybody on mute and leave it for half an hour. <laughs> so you can online religion. But the Quakers don't seem to be remotely evangelical. I've never understood this because they've got the best... Um, you know, if you, if you wanted to choose a religion empirically, um, you know, along with Buddhism... No, actually, that, that can turn violent. Can't it? It's all very weird. But Quakerism comes out very well in that it's way, but way ahead of, say, the political left or other movements. Not that, not that a lot of these movements came from the left, by the way. I mean, the anti-slavery movement was overwhelmingly Tory. Votes for women were introduced under a Tory government. Yes. So, you know, it, I mean, the, these elements of progress aren't the sip, simple Manichaean... Politi- I mean, part of the reason votes for women were introduced under a Tory government was self-interest, which is as you extended the franchise to poorer and more working-class people, okay, yeah. by introducing votes to women, you actually rebalanced the... Um, uh, the class system a bit. And, and it was probably in the Tories' interest to actually open up votes for women. But it's worth remembering there's this very simple narrative of social progress, which basically says there were horrible right-wing people who ruined yep. it for everybody. Yep. And then these nice... And actually, if you look at it, it's much, much messier than that. Well, in fact, I've, 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 this is something that I'm really glad you've hit upon. It's something I've been wanting to um, talk about for a while, which is that you, you were broadly... Um, free associating on the idea of left-wing uh, moral monopoly. 
And, you know, like you said, the idea that basically the conservatives constrain progress and every time the left can actually break through, they make progress. In a sense, that's correct because conservative people say, this is working, don't change it. And the liberals kind of say, no, no, it could be better, let's change it. And they say, if you change it, it might break. But, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here. I wanted to... No, no, no. Well, one, of the most, one of the most interesting things, and I got this from a book by a guy called Morgan Housel, who's actually, yep. it's called The Psychology of Money. And stupidly, like, well, actually, it had a bit occurred to me before because Nassim Taleb said something similar. He said, there's a big asymmetry between the old and the young in that the old know what it's like to be young, but the young don't know what it's like to be old. Brilliant. Um, But there's also a really interesting thing which Morgan Housel points out. And he, he uses this to inform an investment philosophy, but it's also interesting in our understanding of different political opinions, which is that good news is slow and bad news is fast. And so an awful lot of improvement in society which is happening organically. So I would say the 1980s were not, uh, for for the most part, middle-class people in the 1980s, okay, were not homophobic in the sense of uh, violence, hostility, or even necessarily prejudice in the workplace. But conversation was casually homophobic in the 1980s, okay? And, you know, long before my children were born, one of my daughters is very woke, that diminished, you know, okay, if you read publications that you might not think of as political, and bear in mind, Ian Hislop was working there, Private High was markedly homophobic in the 1980s, okay? Not a political magazine, right? I mean, what I mean is it's not a left or right-wing magazine, satirical magazine. A bit like South Park in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And that was actually, you know, that was markedly kind of homophobic in the sense that, I can't, you know, that, you know, poove or whatever would be used routinely. In them. Um, and, you know, they dressed it up with a slightly different vowel sound, a bit like um, shite, you know, is yes. slightly different to shit. But nonetheless, you know. And, um, of course, one thing you don't know uh, when you're young is the direction of travel. So if you think about it, my generation possibly feel, I'm not speaking for myself, but I'm just saying, Well, look, actually, in things like homophobia, casual sexism, sexual harassment, our generation made quite a lot of progress gradually, okay? Yes. And we we went from this is okay to this is not okay. And you're now claiming the credit for going from this is not okay to this is terrible. (laughs) To have people who haven't even begun university yet. They haven't even started university. That's basically our accomplishment and not yours. And so you're laying claim... and. There's a whole lot of anthropology. There's some guy who prepared a Christmas feast for an African tribe, and it's called, was it Feeding Christmas Among the Something or Other? And of course, he comes along as a Johnny come lately and tries to sort of impress them all by buying an ox, right? Where he hasn't been contributing food for the rest of the year. And they all go, yeah, your ox isn't enough. You know, don't be ridiculous, you stupid ox. You'll need to buy two oxes. And he can't understand what the hell's going on because he thinks he's being really generous. Yeah. And these people are being dismissive. And of course, it's don't come, don't turn up late in the day as Mr. Johnny come lately and kind of cre- claim all the credit for doing something quite significant, you know, for doing one big symbolic act. Yeah, I think um, um, the thing... Uh, the, go on. But, but the other thing is, of course, if you think about it, I mean, you know, okay, I, I grew up in a fairly rich part of Wales. I don't, want, I don't want this to come across as, you know, you know, the, the, the what is it, the four Yorkshiremen sketch. Yes, you know? yeah. yeah. Um, but when I was a kid in primary school, you could, first of all, the poorest kids had totally ill-fitting clothes, okay, because they were, they were third-generation hand-me-downs that didn't even fit. The poorest kids actually stank a bit. I was talking to other people about my age. And actually, you know, now obviously, 
that poverty still exists, okay? But it's much less endemic than it was in, what was that, 1971 or something, okay? Um, you know, you can't tell how rich people are from their clothes. I know that seems like a really stupid thing to say. Yeah. Good. In 1973, rich yeah. people look like rich people, poor people look like poor people, right? And and so, quite if you think about it, if you're, I mean, I noticed this because I'm on the I'm on the tarmac at Sydney Airport. We're yeah. about to take off to fly back to the UK about five years ago, and I get out my mobile phone and I like with a childish kind of evil grin, I fiddle about and I give a giggle, and my kids go, "What the hell are you doing, Dad?" And I said, "I just turned on the central heating at home for for a minute, right." Now, and it's something that they go, Dad, you're a total fucking idiot. What are you doing? You know, and I go, of course, they've never grown up in a world where that wasn't possible, yeah, right? they're digital natives. So they're digital natives. And I was getting this childish thrill through being able to, for the thought that 28,000 miles away, this boiler was just chunking into action. Yeah. I mean, it was slightly environmentally friendly, or not, not as environmentally unfriendly as flying from Sydney to London. Yes. But, um, but, but it gave me a kind of kick, because it was just, whoa. You know, this is like a superpower. And to my kids, this is completely banal. And so it does occur to me that, you, that, you know, I mean, okay, you were, how, how old were you when Thatcher, the Thatcher era, you weren't born, were you? Uh, I was born in 92, which means... That's no, you're post-Thatcher kid. Major yeah, became Prime Minister, yeah. yeah. Now, you know, even, okay, probably even like Welsh miners who were the worst affected by that regime mm, would yeah. possibly acknowledge that it wasn't all bad. Okay, it undoubtedly promulgated things like regional inequality, da 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 da. You know, undoubtedly it was bad for people in manufacturing industry. We get all that, okay. But but you know, a bunch of people, and you know, voting statistics would bear this out fairly well. Would say mm-hmm. that you know, uh, you know, there was good and bad to that regime. Whereas people who are born in sort of two thousand and three, just going it all all evil. Yeah. All evil started with Thatcher as a kind of narrative. I, I, and I have to say, that, that's as if the 1970s were this uh, like sunlit fucking daisy chain picking. <laughs> the 70s were horrible. You watch Life I mean, I mean seriously, yeah, yeah. Seriously horrible. <laughs> yes. I mean, things like, I, okay, I can remember this, which is um, a kid, right? Okay, just think of this, right? If, if this had happened now. So my friend's kid, who was about nine, ran ahead... Um, uh, no, he didn't run ahead. That's right. Passed a, a ticket inspection at a, at a British Rail railway station, okay, without showing the ticket. Mm-hmm. Only about two feet in front of uh, my friend, the child's dad, okay? And the ticket inspector just grabbed the kid by the collar. Wow. <laughs> now, that happened. Now, what was interesting is nobody really complained. Yeah. They might have said, don't touch my kid. But I mean, that would be a kind of, you know, that would be a major incident now. Yes. And so, you know, a- areas of physical, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 I, I, yeah, yeah, I mean, just levels of just violence, I think. You know, if you look at football crowds, yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, the Bradford Stadium disaster, okay, that's the following decade. But there are people kind of laughing, right? Yeah. I mean, if you watch the footage. Now, they, okay, let's, give, let's get them off the hook. They didn't know anybody was dying, okay? Yeah. But it was kind of, you know the idea. The idea that this period was somehow really, really nice. Yes. Um, now, what is interesting about that is Mo- Morgan Housel's point is that bad news. First of all, news loves bad news, and news loves bad news because bad news is timely. It's what's breaking now. now this bad yes. thing has happened. Whereas good Whereas, is this kind of slow arc or like slow. Gra- gradual ascent. organic improvement is actually very boring. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
uh, you know, I mean, so what would, what would be a classic example? Okay, I'll give you an example of it. Coffee, right? So, okay, I'm not suggesting that we, we should always vote conservative because coffee is better than it used to be, right? Yeah. Okay, right. But I, I, I went into the shop that's part of B&Q in Tunbridge Wells. Mm-hmm. And I ordered a coffee from the cafe. Now, it was, it was unexpectedly good. But what was interesting is you could get a better coffee in B&Q in Tunbridge Wells than you would have got in the Ritz in 1978. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. There were certain things which were just somehow just universally shit. I don't quite know why people didn't try and improve them. There is a paper by The Economist. I'm just trying to remember which one it is. It's a Nobel Prize winning economist. It might be Stiglitz, where he just says that British food was terrible because people just had low expectations. Interesting, yeah. The, 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 he, he, he surmised in this paper, which he wrote when he was quite young, that actually, um, uh, now interestingly, of course, we were exposed to Indian food, but for a long time, it, you know, you couldn't get Indian food at home. But for a lot of, he, he always surmised that there was a possible limitation to economic progress that just arises from low expectations or, you know, uh, lack of innovation in the consumer base. But there is, there's, a, there's a point to be drawn from uh, the issue you were discussing, and I'll get... Gary, who QAs these talks to bring up a load of images on the screen for us of, you know, our world in progress and humanprogress.org, things like that. Uh, So there's a common idea amongst people my age and younger at the moment that the world is completely fucked and is going in some uh, direction. And if you look at things like child mortality, uh, rate of literacy amongst adults, rate of numeracy, uh, nutrition... GDP per capita and all things like this. They're all things that go in a positive direction. In fact, we looked at child mortality rates yesterday and it's like a very, very high cliff that just drops off in the last hundred years. Yeah, and that was, I mean, of course, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think, work out, I mean, there were various things. There was forceps was one bit of progress. Obviously, I suppose it was just general hygiene and hand washing. Yes. That must have been a huge part of it. Um. Uh, I mean, that's Semmelweis. You can go and look up Semmelweis, uh, you know, who was, uh, you know, the first person to spot that, it, you know, that, um, uh, what was it? The, the mid- people delivered by a midwife were vastly less likely to die than people delivered by a doctor because the doctors were also treating people with other severe diseases. Yes. Yeah. Whereas the midwives were confined to the maternity ward. Yeah. And so he promoted this hand-washing idea and was dr- dr- basically derided for it. Which, I mean, that's an example of how frames change, just as yes. the frames change. Drink driving, the frames totally changed, okay? Acceptance of same-sex marriage was an incredibly rapid frame shift. Um, it probably, by the way, the other thing that you've got to understand, okay, is, and this is where Nick Christakis could help, is that most of these things, whether it's adoption of the mobile telephone or adoption of the landline telephone, which was incredibly slow, by the way, yeah. So for a 19th century invention, I think it's like 1950-something before 50% of Americans have a telephone. Well, it's like and the, that, was, yeah. that was largely lack of demand. It wasn't actually lack of availability. I mean, okay, it was expensive. I, yeah. I get, take that. But of course, in the early days, if you weren't middle class, you didn't know enough people to phone up. But this you, is like you, your, your promotion of Zoom, and then, you know, there was never <coughs> a moment yeah. for it, and then now it's arrived. And so what's really interesting, I think, is that which I think the woke movement also needs to understand, is that there is a natural speed, um, and it's a very uneven speed, at which the population changes its mind. And it's slow, fast, and then eventually the last laggards are slow, but they tend to die. So it's kind of okay? like a hockey stick and then a plateau. It's a sigmoid curve, I think is the technical term. So it's, it, it's a slow <laughs> thing, then it rapidly accelerates, then it, then it hits a... And of course, the plateau it hits... 
Um, you know, there are certain technologies where the plateau is, remains always quite low because the ultimate market for this technology isn't that high. Yes. Um, certain things like Wi-Fi were incredibly fast because they were incredibly inexpensive and there wasn't really a reason why if you had internet access, you wouldn't want Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that seemed to be a case where we achieved, some, uh, you know, from zero penetration. I, mean, I can still remember going and staying in hotel rooms, right? And you go into a sort of five-star hotel room, which had been beautifully decorated. You spent the first 15 minutes pulling the bed away from the wall so you could then detach the telephone and plug in your Mogadin cable. And it was RJ45, is it? I think it's not, yeah, it was an RJ11. It was one of the two, I can never remember. But you had to plug in your, mo your modem cable, which of course was really weird in France because they had a completely different telephone plug. And so you had to own all these weird devices, which you could only buy on the internet. And so, you know, and Wi-Fi was incredibly rapid when you look at it. And yeah. actually, uh, you know, because nobody owns Wi-Fi. By comparison to other innovations of a similar By comparison type. to other innovations, that was remarkable. Um, Zoom was, was, would have been 10 years slower, maybe, if it hadn't been for the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I did have an idea, and I, I must discuss it with Nick Christakis, which is, I told Zoom, before the pandemic, obviously, um, uh, what you should experiment with is Zoom Fridays. Do ads that say, thank Zoom, it's Fridays. Get people to work from home on Friday. And then they've got proof that this works at scale. Yes. And then it might spread to Monday. Amazing. But I said, if you can concentrate the idea that you work from home on Friday and you do remote meetings, once you've got a foothold on one day, the likelihood is it could spread. But understanding Christakis's network stuff, because he believes, I think rightly, that if you... If you intervene in the right place, right, um, uh, then you get disproportionately more purchase in terms of network spread and how fast it spreads than if you start it trying to intervene at the edges of the network. Yeah. And there's probably an age thing there too, which is, I mean, there is something, I think there is something a little bit weird about, you know, if you tell people, okay, so my dad would have lived in an age where it started off with homosexuality being illegal until he was in his mid-30s, okay? Uh, the Spectator, which was always very pro-legalization, this is where it gets complicated because it's not yeah. a left-right thing. Uh, the Spectator, unusually for British publications, supported the North and the American Civil War, okay? Yeah. Right? Okay, now, just to be clear that these things aren't quite as simple when you dig back. Um, but The Spectator, which before, I think in the 1950s, had supported decriminalization of homosexuality, was derided as the bugger's bugle. Right. right. This is the, the, unless I can, unless there's, you know, um, the, the, I don't want to interrupt you if there's a direction you're going in, but this hangs on to a question I've, I've been. Okay, go ahead. Ask away. Yeah, time, yeah. Which is that it, it's roughly about the fact that a particular measurement tool or or, or phenomenon that you're trying to use to measure uh, something might not be an appropriate one. What does that mean? What I mean is, if you notice in sort of mythological stories or, you know, like more recent ones like Harry Potter and things like that, usually the hero is quite harshly criticized. And the reason is because they're trying to upset the orthodoxy. Yes. But the thing is, if you were doing something reprehensible, you would also be quite harshly criticized. So what I'm saying is, it, you can't, if you're being harshly criticized by a lot of people, you can neither say, well, I must be doing something right or I must be no. doing something wrong. No, so it's, it's very, very hard going against the grain. And I think it's, it's dishonest for a bunch of people who are at universities aged 19 <laughs> to become highly sanctimonious because they're in an environment where it's very easy to do so. The lights are on, the heating's on, the food is provided for you, the state yeah. looks after you, your parents have looked after you, you've been given money to go there in the form of a loan. 
So there's a guy you must interview who's at Cambridge, and he's called he Rob Henderson. Okay. And he's a really interesting guy because he's studying psychology, but he is... Uh, his background is, I'm, I'm sure this is in the public domain, so I'm okay saying this, but I mean, he, he was in a variety of foster homes in LA. Okay. Uh, I think he's mixed race, Korean, Anglo, something like that. Uh, grew up in foster homes. Eventually, what he thinks saved him was joining the US Air Force. Wow. Okay. So, you know, that kind of imposition of order and so forth was, as far as he was concerned, a kind of rescue from what could have been disastrous. Yes. Um, but he's very interesting because he talks about people having um, high-status opinions. They're fashionable opinions. Right, yeah. And so just as you, you know, you know if you want a high-status in an academic setting, you can't really go and wear, um, uh, you know, uh, Issey Miyake clothes. Or, you know, you don't turn up in a lecture with a machino belt, do you, yeah, right? Yeah. But you have these things which are kind of high-status opinions. And they're a badge of status. And part of it might be that it shows that you can afford to have those opinions. Yeah, you're not risking anything by having it. Well, you're, you're not dependent on a community for support. So yes. you're not, you're, you can have outrageous opinions because you're not dependent on a bunch of other people in your surrounding community for your continued comfortable existence. You know, you're, you can be entirely individualistic. Yep. And sometimes, sometimes those opinions are actually just nice, I think it's fair to say, and sometimes they're benign and beneficial. Yeah. But sometimes the motivation behind them is what often it is with status signaling is I'll show you what I can, I'll demonstrate my status by showing you what I can get away with. Yeah. You know, and so sometimes people who are, you know, in a unique position demonstrate very heavily what they can do that other people can't. Yeah. And so that can sometimes lead to the adoption of opinions or viewpoints. So, for example, one of his, I think Rob Henderson's points is that if you look at the people who most advocate for, you know, let's say open marriage, okay, they very rarely practice it themselves, actually. The divorce rate among, you know, uh, you know high-status individuals is actually very, very low. They tend to live in nuclear families more etc., etc., etc. But they have an anything-goes mentality towards uh, what you might call you know, family formation or whatever it might be, or monogamy or, you know, alternative lifestyles, you know, they'll, anything goes. Although they don't adopt it for themselves. Yes, so this much. is like not acting out the ideas that you and possess. So, and so the argument is, well, you know, you're in a position where such a, you know, such a lifestyle might be much more tenable than it is for other people. Yes. So it's, a, you know, you've got to be, you've got to be very careful about signaling your open-mindedness because what's a lifestyle choice for you might be life or death or, you know, for somebody else. Very interesting. And that's actually a point made by our mutual friend, Steve Harrison, isn't it? In um, his most recent book. Yes, absolutely that. Yeah. yeah the, the, the kind of the woke philosophy is um, kind of expensive real estate. You know, you can, if you can afford to have it uh, or those kind of opinions, you know, it's a new form of elitism, social elitism. That's absolutely fair. That it, 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 it's, I mean, by the way, I, 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 the last thing I want to suggest is that all of it's counterproductive. Yes. Uh, or, that it, or that necessarily that it has bad effects. Mm. But it's worth looking at the motivation, the deep motivation for this. And it may not always be um, uh, uh, quite as altruistic as it's presented. In other words, you are playing a status game by adopting these opinions. And uh, the fact that the opinion can be presented as being altruistic I mean, you could argue, for example, that disparaging tax cuts is an oblique way of signaling that you're quite rich or that you don't need the money. Uh, yeah. Or that, you know, 
you, I mean, you could argue you know, in, in some senses that, you know, uh, a lot of things which might appear to be altruistic um, are actually motivated in part by an unconscious urge to signal something about yourself and yourself in relation to other people. So one of the things I suppose, yes, yeah, Steve Harrison would probably say the same thing, as, and I've said it repeatedly, is look, if you're a chief executive or you're an Oxbridge-educated so-and-so, yeah. you know, with a high-status job in an economic think tank, turning up to work on a bicycle is a high-status activity because it's patently a choice, not a necessity, okay? Yes. Whereas if you work at Pizza Hut, turning up on a bike means you can't afford a car. Interesting, yeah. To some extent, you yeah. know. And also, you know, that guy who cycles to work very ostentatiously probably doesn't have to cycle to work in the pissing rain. Yeah. You know, there's an alternative when it's raining. There's an alternative you can take a taxi if you're working late, all that sort of stuff. So that what is a status signal for some? Oh, no, it, it, it is a signal of the inverse status in a different environment. Yeah, so it's counter-signaling. There's a book by something like Stakhanovich or Stakhovich and Toe. Stephen T.O. is the name, so it's very hard to Google um, uh, if you're called T.O. But it's called Too Cool for School, I think it is, and it's, yeah. a, counter, it's a paper on counter-signaling. And it suggests that very high-status people, people or higher-status people aren't very keen to differentiate themselves from three people three classes below because there's no risk of being confused for them. But you actually signal your higher status by actively adopting opposite patterns of behavior to people just beneath you in the social ladder. And why would it be important to distinguish yourself like that? Uh, because um, uh, you, the, the game is that uh, if the idea would have been if you're in 1930, uh, you know, that aristocratic practice of dressing very scruffily, where you can adopt certain sort of working class practices like having a battered old car. Okay, yeah. you do that deliberately to show that your status isn't dependent on your car or your clothes. Yes, because if you've got a twenty-nine bedroom baronial hall with three thousand acres of land, you know your car doesn't really say that much about you, I guess. Yeah. And it's the same thing, you know. A rock in, in in music, you know, a lot of rock musicians dress very scruffily and maybe slightly neglectful of personal hygiene. And the whole idea is, you know, by dint of by dint of you know, being the bass player in very cool band, I don't need to make an effort. Yeah. The same effort that other people do. And so you're very much signaling your your coolness by your need not to, tr not to try. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because coolness as such is often channeling a, a great deal of effort into looking like you have looking not effortless. any effort in yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which I find fascinating. Um, there was this is a, this is a, a tangent, and it's another another idea I wanted to throw at you and see see what you make of it. Um, so you know that phenomenon where if you say a word over and over again, it starts to sort of lose its meaning. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I wonder if the same goes for just all verbal entities. So this is you know kind of nonverbal agreements or rules or conventions. The more we either repeat them or act them out, they start to lose their meaning. And that's one of the reasons that we start to doubt or question them. And then they are sort of due for an update. You need to assess them in a novel or a unique way to get the meaning back out of them. Well, there might be another thing, which is that if people need to keep going on and on and on about something, yeah. maybe it's because they don't really believe it and that they're actually doing this in order to convince themselves, not to convince you. 
nuts. And I wrote a piece this week in The Spectator which says that I think there's an element to Londoners. Not all Londoners. I think some people sincerely really like London, okay? And I think younger people really like living in big cities for lots of obvious young people reasons. Yes. But I think there's an element where people who, let's face it, I couldn't get a job outside a huge city, could I? Right? <laughs> because I'm now so specialised. Now, I can commute, and I do, okay? But I think there's a certain number of people who have no choice. They're stuck in London, okay? Because, you know, there's, there, there isn't much call for vice chairman of ad agency in, you know, Newport or in Hull, right? Yeah. And they can only live in London. And so you acquire this kind of Stockholm syndrome where you, uh, you, you reverse engineer your beliefs to fit the constraints of your choices. And so you start going on about how London's really vibrant. People always say, the theatre. And you say, well, how often do you actually go to the theatre? Yeah, how often do you go, see Les Mis and the Phantom of the Opera? <laughs> you know? And actually, Londoners don't go to the theatre very often, apart from a tiny group of Londoners who go a hell of a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so... A lot of this stuff, I think, is actually a kind of mantra. And if you repeat it often enough, it becomes impossible to disbelieve. Yes. Yes. And that, you notice that with people for people who fall into the same groove over and over again about something, <coughs> that's why it's very difficult to listen to them. You know, I... Yeah. Um, well, so, so how do you know if someone's a vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you soon enough. Very, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. And, you know, I, I was... I, I broadly speaking, I'm a liberal, and I was always so I'm, I'm not a conservative, but I was always very frustrated with people who just bash conservatives. And so, why am I saying this? Because I'm about to make a pro-capitalist point, uh, which is not very fashionable for young people. So, um, you often get people. There's a lot of people I know who would say to the point you made about you've got vice chairman of an ad agency. Uh, it, and that they are, let's say, maybe not so useful in an agricultural environment or something like that, they would say, well, the ergo, that's a demonstration that their role is actually worthless. If they can't do something of functional utility like growing food, then they're not actually valuable. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of cynical appraisal of specialism. Yeah, I mean, David Graeber, the brilliant anarchist anthropologist, wrote this fantastic, uh, it started as a paper and then it went viral. So he wrote a book called Bullshit Job. Yes, that's the exact, I was thinking of that when you, yeah. And I think it is quite plausible that um, advanced stage capitalism throws up jobs which are kind of like spandrels. They're just, a, in, in evolutionary terms, they're just a product of the complexity. And in and of themselves, they don't serve any function. They're a byproduct of late stage capitalism where you just, you know, you know, and, and quite a lot of those jobs were produced in IT, interestingly, reading the book, bullshit jobs, you know, people, um, uh, you know, there were people who literally were paid to do a job, discovered that you could automate it because they were quite good at coding and basically were paid to do bugger all for four and a half days a week while the algorithm did all their work. Wow. And um, uh, the interesting thing there is, you know, theoretically capitalism shouldn't produce these bullshit jobs, but it patently does. And there are various theories as to why it happens, by the way. I and mean, one of them is just that, you know, employers, you know, who can't get a pay rise but like the status of having a large number of reports, all this sort of stuff. And it's re it, is, it is really interesting because I think that I mean, Adam Smith spotted this, that there are huge gains to the division of labor, but they don't necessarily fall on the individual laborer mm. whose job may become much more monotonous. Yeah. And also the job may become worse paid because it, we don't seem to be as good at rewarding tacit experience as we are at rewarding explicit knowledge. Yes. So if you get a qualification for something, 
you've created scarcity around your job and you get paid a premium for that. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you take someone like a builder or a plumber or a, um, uh, or for that matter, a nurse as distinct from a doctor, okay, a really, really good nurse really is relying on a huge amount of tacit knowledge, which isn't necessarily book learning, mm -hmm. but it's just long time experience. Yes. And we don't place a value on that. It, and it does, and because you can't actually sort of say, I mean, you should say, I've been a nurse for 20 years, therefore I'm worth a lot more than a nurse who's only been a nurse for three years, I guess. And so we do reflect it a little bit in paying people for experience. But we seem to be much better at paying people a premium and creating the idea of scarcity around what you might call explicit knowledge, you know, non-tacit knowledge. And there's a guy, if you want to read up on this, Michael Pollyani, who's a very interesting kind of economic thinker and polymath from the 1950s and 60s who made this point that most knowledge and experience actually resides within the minds of people doing jobs, but it isn't codifiable and it isn't something you can earn a qualification in. But that doesn't mean it's not really, really valuable and indeed essential. That kind of hangs on to one of your the yeah. threads that goes through all of your thinking, isn't it? Which is that uh, the obsession, obsession with measuring and rationalizing can't account for everything. No. It, it's kind of like you were saying there is you cannot boil down experience to a rational supposition that you could just, in, you know, it, take in. But it occurred to me thinking about things like tipping, okay, which is how does a restaurant incentivize great wait staff, right? The customers, that, uh, in theory. The only person who knows <laughs> is the customer. Yeah. And you can't really codify what's a great restaurant experience. I mean, you can try it, as with American entities like McDonald's, who probably say you must smile when you greet the customer. Okay? Yeah. And so you can teach it to an extent. But the difference between... Okay, what's the difference between a bad postman and a great postman? Okay, it's nothing to do with how reliably they... Oh, okay, a really terrible postman just throws your post away. You can measure that, okay? If, yeah. the, if the letters aren't going through the door, you can probably measure that. But you can't measure the difference between... And you can't really codify what makes a great postman. And yet, you know, when... I always remember this research conducted by Royal Mail about 25 years ago, where the single biggest determinant of your attitude to the Royal Mail brand was whether you liked your postman. <laughs> and... You know, and so one of the interesting solutions to low pay for frontline workers is theoretically, though not practically, I don't think it'd be socially acceptable, for, for widespread gifting to become common. So that, you know, that I don't think we regard it as acceptable to tip nurses, right? Yeah, yeah there's a... But there's, yeah. it is a solution to the problem, which is that the value is co-created between the restaurant and the customer, in a sense. And there are elements of the value created by a restaurant experience which the customer understands and values, but which the restaurant can't measure or reward. Yeah. Or, or doesn't even properly understand because the things the restaurant's measuring is, you know, is the food getting out? What's our margin? You know, uh, is the food getting onto the table quickly? Well, okay. I mean, I, I prefer my food to get to my table quickly than slowly, but it isn't really you know, that which makes the difference between a great restaurant experience and an okay one. No, there was a really interesting experience I had when I worked in a restaurant and you could see the sort of negative uh, affect of a, you know, like a simplistic economic redistribution program. So obviously there were a 
number of staff who were on the floor. They were the waiters. They yeah. And they received substantially more tips, especially if they were very, very good with the customers. And then the bar staff basically didn't see any. And in order to redress that, they said, well, what we'll do is we'll take all the tips, collect them all, <coughs> and then redistribute them based on hours <coughs> worked. And of course, the end result was that the floor staff uh, couldn't be bothered to provide really, really good service because no. you know their argument was, well, I won't, you know, I won't see the tips that I'm given by the experience I'm giving. So that redistribution of tipping needs to be is really complicated, isn't it? Yes, yeah, undoubtedly. Because some of it needs to filter back to the people who produce the food, who are are let's be honest, deserving of some of the credit. Yes, but some of it needs to be retained with the individual person who served that customer. Yes. Uh, on the grounds that the feedback loop doesn't work otherwise. If everything gets, uh, if everything gets pooled, the feedback loop's destroyed and the incentive structure's destroyed. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, this is the... Um, it's, this is, I, I thought it was fascinating because it was a microcosm of the argument about uh, economic inequality. You know, so the people who produce a lot get to keep a lot. And then there's people saying, well, no, it should be kind of more fairly shared out. And both are true. And so how to balance the two statements is the, one of the biggest that's, arguments. That's, that's what's quite interesting about a universal basic income because it appeals to people both on the right and on the left. And it's gaining traction, isn't it? Yeah, and the, well, I, even if it doesn't work in practice, it works in theory, which sounds like a terrible thing to say. But it's interesting as a thought experiment simply because right-wing people like it because it preserves incentive structures, right? If there's one guy who's staying in bed all day and the other guy's driving a van all day, the van driver ends up proportionately richer than the guy staying in bed. Yes. Okay? Um, uh, but at the same time, it ensures or should ensure that nobody actually goes hungry and no one's the victim of random misfortune. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think as well with the... I'm always just... I'm always... Oh, no, I'm not always. I try to be wary of, you know, utopian policies... Uh, that after a few seconds sound great, and if if I if you propose one challenge, it it becomes a yeah. problem. So, with the idea of universal basic income, you could say taking a, a an example whereby everyone has a thousand pounds, and then one person does one thing that gets them an extra thousand pounds, and all of a sudden you've created a very very steep economic distribution in which one person has twice as much as everyone else. And what we're sensitive to is not absolute uh, poverty, it's relative poverty. You know, yeah. we're sensitive to whether our neighbor has more than us, not whether we have more than, you know, uh, we would have had uh, a thousand years ago. So there's also, there's also a finding which is weird, which is that our perception of wealth is undoubtedly relative, not absolute, to a large extent, not, not completely. Okay, you know, at some levels, you know, at levels of extreme poverty, actually it's an absolute problem, not a relative problem. You know, you simply haven't got enough money or you haven't got enough cash flow. Yeah. And also, you haven't got enough money to rapidly do significant things. Because to save up to do something that costs... If, 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 if you need to repair the shock absorbers in your car or something, and it, that's going to cost you 500 quid, and you need to do that out of saved income, that might end up taking a year, right? Well, that requires a hell of a lot of self-control not to spend money on anything else for a year so you can repair your car's shock absorbers, right? So we don't really understand the whole um, cash flow versus wealth thing either. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons it's very bad being poor is not just that you don't have enough money, it's that you get your money in dribs and drabs. So at some level, it makes more sense to spend it on small things rather than things that might improve your life. Yeah. Um. And I noticed that actually in a very weird way, and that when I was about, 
I suppose I was about 30-something. I inherited a, you know, a, not, it was nothing huge. It was a five, very small five-figure sum, you know. But it completely changed my life because suddenly you could put down a deposit on the house, you could do this, you could do that, you know. Yeah. Suddenly, you could go, oh, shall I get a car? Maybe, maybe you know, et cetera. Or you could suddenly ask these questions which were unaskable beforehand because yeah. they were just not possibilities, realistically, at least not in the medium term. Yes. And um, so understanding that, I think, is really important. And one of the arguments would be that a universal basic income would take everybody. The other one that's an argument is not a universal basic income, but it's a big lump sum payment to people early in life. Early in life. Interesting. So you just give people at the age of 22 or something. So one argument is, why don't you allow student loans to be used for anything? So anybody who's basically 19 can borrow at highly, you know, wow. okay, yeah. borrow indefinitely until they start earning back and also never having the obligation to pay back if they don't earn subsequently above a certain threshold. But you're given a lump sum to start you off in life, which you don't have to spend in education. Yeah. Now, okay, you know, one kid's going to spend it on a Ford Mustang or something and we're going to get, you know, you're going to get a scandal in the sun. But a lot of people would spend that very wisely. A hell of a lot of people would save it. A hell of a lot of people would make different decisions. You know, a hell of a lot of people would start a business if you yeah. gave them 27,000 quid up front. Well, yeah. I, you know, they... So, so that's the interesting question, which is if, if you accept the student loan... And you accept that you, you, want, you want to marketize education. Education is not a market if you can only borrow money to spend on education. That's yes, why property prices are so high, because the only way you can leverage yourself significantly to make money from a rising asset is in the property market. Yes. If I went to my building society and said, I want to borrow 800,000 quid to buy IBM shares, they'd show me the door, right? If it's a house, off you go. See, that's really interesting. Okay, so I was having this argument with... Um... I'll, I'll just come out and say, I was having an argument with my own mum the other day because um, we were, uh, I was trying to make the point that it seems uh, difficult and the data bears this out, for the data bear this out, I should say, for young people to uh, buy property these days. And you can see that with the, you know, the data on young people buying property declining. Uh, median income in comparison to price, house, uh, price houses, house prices, is lower than it was. And I wonder, I just wanted to get your take on that whole uh, situation and what you think ought to be done about it or why you think it might have come about. Well, this is why I think uh, uh, flexible working is so important because if we're obliging our younger staff to live and work in London five days a week, it's impossible for us to make them rich. Yes. Yes, and it, it, it points that. the housing market in one direction in there because you, you have to be there to work. And it's a terrible case of intergenerational um, uh, lack of comprehension because you have to go... In a sense, London is much more valuable to the young than it is to the old because you go there to maximise opportunity early in your life. Yes. Okay, because no one be, nowhere beats a sort of megacity for um, uh, you know, the exponential increase in available upside opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, you can meet a guy in a bar who actually runs a company which specializes in something you happen to know a huge amount about. Da -da 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 -da. And now, now, Zoom arguably does that better than London. We need to have a debate about that because it's a really interesting question. Is, you know, is Zoomtopia a better megacity than London, Singapore, New York? Yes. Um, in terms of maximizing that kind of serendipitous opportunity, maybe it is. It was actually a point you made when we spoke last year. You said, uh, by the way, 
uh, Zoom, you can win business over in a way you can't over email. You can't over the phone, phone, you can't over email. No, and that has no. been the case for us. In fact, yesterday we had a conversation with Ogilvy South Africa uh, about an upcoming brief. So, you know, yeah, it's uh, it, 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 you were correct. <laughs> and, and that's a very interesting discovery because we need to, you know, just as humans, we need to see someone's face to establish trust at some level, I think. Yes. I'm not sure we need to smell them. You know, I don't, yeah. think, it's, I don't think we're like dogs. You know, I don't think we need to smell them to trust them, but I think we probably do need to see them. Well, it's another um, point you the, made about we're so facially sensitive, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and actually, conversation is partly, fa- you know, communication is very largely facial. Darwin did a lot of work on this. Yes. Um, do you do that and, when you're um, public speaking? By the way, do you try and keep an eye on the audience to see when a point is going over well, or if you need to change tack? Um. Uh, interesting. Um. Yeah. Oh, yes. You use that hugely. I mean, the feedback thing of laughter or amusement or attention and all those kind of things is absolutely vital. There's a heuristic I used to use when I was doing public speaking, by the way, which is that if the AV people are paying attention to what you're saying, you're doing something right because they don't have to watch the speakers. They can stare at a screen. They can play Tetris. I mean, obviously, they've got to pay attention that the AV is basically working. But once the AV is basically working and the slides are changing, they're not obliged to actually pay attention to what they, what you're saying, whereas the people in the in, in the audience are obliged to, out of politeness, and gen, you know. Yes. Um, uh, you know, you could look at your phone a bit, true. But, but actually, bad, if, the, if the AV people are watching your talk, you're probably getting something right. Right. Yeah, I'd never... Um, well, obviously, I'd never thought about that. I've not done any public speaking. But, um, but yeah, the... Um, the the Zoom thing in, in in relation to, you know, geography. Um, I'm hoping, I know that we're all desperate to get back to life as normal uh, at the moment, but I'm also desperate not to lose the gains we've made by being able to use this technology instead of going on a train every week or every two weeks. Yeah, I think it'd be tragic if we reverted to the status quo ante, and I think that would just be an extraordinary... I mean, to some extent, we can't revert to the status quo ante, in that I... we. In between the lockdowns, we reopened Ogilvy's offices. And I thought, well, as the vice chairman, I better go in to show willing and to sort of fly the flag a bit. And I couldn't because I looked at my diary and every day I had so many Zoom calls pre-scheduled. Now, okay, I could have gone into the office, done some Zoom calls and gone home, but that's just stupid. Yeah, right? weird. <laughs> that's just weird, right? But it's so no said, weirder like, than what we said the first time, which is that all we were doing before was taking our laptop from our home to our office to do And emails. then doing email. Yeah. The hell was all that? And so the, the the fact that we've destroyed a degree of presenteeism, I think, is pretty good. And it seems that in the US, the productivity figures rocketed. Now, actually, there's a worry, which is overwork, because people compensate for presenteeism by probably working too hard remotely. Yep. No. I'm not sure. I mean, we'll see what happens to computing power in the next 10 years. There's a great joke in Futurama where the head of Richard Nixon says, it's the year 3000, of course, he says, uh, computers may be twice as fast as they were in 1973. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I'm really, I'm hoping that, I don't know what's going to happen, but people in our profession where we need serious computing power to chug all of the information, all of the audio and all of the video, I'm wondering how soon things like that are going to be able to be done remotely. Because, you know, with Zoom, you can, if you're screen sharing, you can control someone else's desktop. Maybe that's the next step is when you even... You don't. You just log into some huge computing server to do the, you know, the work, but it will be handling all of the data. That's very interesting. And so also you have, you know, it's worth remembering this isn't just office work. It might revolutionize medicine. It might revolutionize. Now, one of the things we've got to be really careful of there is it's absolutely fair to say, okay, 
that a Zoom consultation is not as good as a physical consultation with a doctor and that a Zoom seminar may not be as good as a physical seminar uh, with um, in education, right? And a lot of people said, yes, it's not as good as a physical meeting, okay? And I said, yeah, but you're missing the point here, which is this meeting would never have taken place in yes. the physical world anyway. Yes. So you, instead of, you should make the comparison with no meeting at all. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't make the comparison with an imaginary meeting in a physical space which would never be occupied by all you people anyway. Yeah. You know, so I might have a typical Zoom call where there's someone in Bozeman, Montana, and there's someone else in Miami, and there's someone else in, you know, India, right? Now, that would take six months to organize. It would cost, you know, eight grand in travel costs, and the finance department would never have approved it anyway. So saying this isn't as good as a physical meeting is totally insane. It's comparing it with something that is essentially you're comparing it with an imaginative utopia in which we'd invented teleportation. Yes, again, that is a great point to always bear in mind, which is something that we reflexively do uh, too much in an imaginary utopia. It's like, well, this isn't as good as what I think the best thing ever could be if we made it, but is it better than what came before is the important thing. I mean, you know, a lot of the thing is not, it's not just money, it's also permission, don't forget, which yeah. is that a, a, even a physical meeting where you provide catering has a cost. People have to travel there. Now you need a really strict agenda because you have to be seen to be making the maximal possible use of the available time because the time is costly. Now, I'm always a bit anti-agenda in that I think that if you, if you know what the objective of the meeting is to begin with, and you allow people a degree of digression. You normally cover all the areas you need anyway. And half the value arises from the red herrings. Yes. yes. Right? So having a very, very focused linear meeting structure is actually slightly counterproductive because it's, it, it's not what a meeting does best. Yeah. And I always, I always found that when I, you know, if I sat as a non-executive director on boards, they were so tightly focused on finance and you know, corporate governance issues you said, hold on a second, this is the only time in which all these people are probably together for the month. And, you know, if there's no time for just random chit-chat, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, actually what should happen is the really rigid agenda bit should probably happen over Zoom and the chatty bit yeah. should happen face-to-face. And, well, you know, I've, I've also said that brainstormings should be split into two, but we try and cram too much into a single event because of the sunk cost in coordination and... Um, uh, the sunk cost in um, coordination and travel cost. Yeah. I mean, You've got all these people together for a day. Let's try and do everything. Well, no, let's do half of it. Then let's take a week's break. And then when we've had time to ferment ideas and time to get lucky, then we'll do the second half of the meeting. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know what your diary looks like uh, today, so I don't want to consume too much of your time, but I've got, four, I think, four big, four big questions that I think might cover another 20 minutes. So, but one of them is on on that, and that's the idea that, you know, there's been this debate in Adland for years, and John Hegarty weighed in recently about, you know, narrowcast versus broadcast. And I think one of the, I, I'm, I'm very new to advertising, I'm guessing one of the debates forever has been the fact that it's actually very difficult to measure whether, it's very difficult to predict whether what you're doing is going to produce the result you want. And there has to be, you know, so there there's always has to be an argument made for uh, doing something even when you cannot predict what it's going to do, because that's what advertising is in a sense, isn't it? Well, you could argue that marketing is kind of stochastic in that the reason broadcast is useful mm-hmm. is that uh, it, not only because 
you know, there's a lot of evidence from Byron Sharp and others that shows that, you know, broadly speaking, reach drives growth, mental and physical availability combined with distinctiveness. But actually, that's breadth of mental and, and uh, uh, physical availability, not, uh, you know, narrow um, targeting. Yeah. And bear in mind, I come from direct marketing. So I spent the first 15 years of my life preaching the targeting gospel, which is still true, by the way, okay? Mm -hmm. It's still, you know, it, it's not either or, it's both and. And we're not very good at both and thinking. But we've, the reason I've become a kind of pro-mass media person is because, weirdly, when I started out, people wanted to do advertising and they didn't want to do direct marketing, right? Mm -hmm. And that was because direct marketing, when it was direct mail, was very, very hard work. This is okay. why you're a fan of Drayton Bird as well, isn't oh, it? Oh, massive. Yeah, no, no. I'm an absolute fan of Drayton Bird. Um, and, and so I, I still, you know, at the time, people would, uh, you know, people would spend hours agonizing over their advertising and then not bother much with the direct marketing. That was a mistake. Because if you're someone like the American Express card, you do need to create the point of purchase, i.e. a direct mail shot or a take one, where someone actually applies for the card. Yes. Okay. If you don't have that, that's com B. If you don't have that moment where it's kind of now or never, okay, you could be the most famous brand in the world and nobody would buy you. If you never right? actually try and do the sales activation. If you never actually try and do the sales activation bit, nobody, you know, you could be really famous and everybody go, apparently it's great, yeah. Um, <laughs> but nobody would buy you, right? Yep. So this is a both and question. But now the obsession with measurement and quantification because of the nerd invasion of the marketing space, to an extent, means people would rather do something that's measurably stupid than in immeasurably intelligent. Uh, that's exactly it. It's like, is it good? I don't know, but I can measure. I can the measure out it. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, just to give a very simple example, what's the easiest thing to measure if you want to prove the validity of your existence? Well, it's basically finding people who are going to buy your product anyway and getting them to buy it a few days sooner by offering them a discount. Okay. Right. Yeah. So that's selling to people who would have bought anyway at a lower price than you, you, you could have done. Yeah. What's the purpose of marketing? The purpose of marketing is to sell to people who never wanted to buy the product before they saw your communication at as high a price as possible. Okay? Yeah. So you're actually, the thing that's easiest to measure is the least important thing for marketers to be doing, arguably, which is discounting to... Now, by the way, I mean, using price to... Um, overcome inertia is not a crazy thing to do. I'm not suggesting for a second that it doesn't work. It's very interesting, by the way, that marketers, if you look at it, never use price the way that economists think that lower price works. If you look at most uses of price and discount in marketing, they're nothing to do with the price-demand curve. And people go, I, you know, I do not derive £2.20 utility from this, mm -hmm. but I would derive £1.89 utility from this. Therefore, seeing that it's reduced to £1.88, I will now buy this product, okay? Right. That's the kind of price-demand curve model. Marketers mostly use it in a way which is probably overcoming inertia. That's how retailers do it, don't they? Yes. Stale, right? You know, now on the sale, three weeks only, this, yeah. maximum four per customer, 50% extra free, Right. Yep. Those are all things where actually marketers are using them to actually overcome inertia. They're not really using them in a way, you know, it, it doesn't, you've never seen an ad, obviously you've never seen an ad that says, poor people, great news, you couldn't afford one of these, now you can. Right? Yeah. Because that's how you'd advertise a price drop if you, uh, if you believed in economics. Right. right? Yeah. That's what you're ad, you target poor people and say, now you can afford one of these. 
But advertising doesn't work like that. It discounts generally to everybody. I mean, there, there are loads of things. I mean, I don't think marketers spend enough time chasing price discrimination, not nearly enough time. In other words, how do we get, uh, how do we capture more of the consumer surplus and lose less of the deadweight loss? Um, and I think, actually, of course, the way car brands do it is premiumization. A very interesting paper has just come out that shows that high-status people care much more about attaining status than low-status people or average people do. I suppose that follows, doesn't it? And it sort of follows, because of course, you've got more to lose as well. But it also explains, they argue, it might explain some of the persistence in wealth inequality. Right. That, it, that actually that status-seeking is a bit like heroin, that the more you have, the more you want. Could you not also infer, I mean, I'm, I really am no psychologist, so whenever I say, you know, could you not also say this? It's not like I'm suggesting that whoever did the research is an idiot and I've spotted a flaw. They must have thought of the fact that if you're high status, you're more likely to be the type of person who chased that high status and achieved it. Yes, yes, yes. Also, you might argue that high status people lay down the rules for status to some extent. You could, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. not a social constructionist, but I know it, it is an attractive theory. Um, but then I'm not much. I'm not a much of anythingist. You know, I'm just a armchair philosopher. No, no. I mean, that's a very healthy. That's a very healthy thing. I mean, I. You know, uh, in fairness, by the way, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's always a great question to ask people. What have you changed your mind about? And if the answer is nothing, <laughs> you know, then the answer is you haven't really been thinking, have you? You know, our account director here, Vicky, said the most honest and brilliant thing during a uh, debate recently. She just said, "I agree with myself." And I think if most people were honest during debates, they would just come straight out with it. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was great. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, how can we get you on Joe Rogan? I think you need to go on there. Well, I don't know. I, I've never met him. I've been on quite a few of the big American podcasts. Yeah, well, um, I think Chris Duckett has been on quite recently. So That'll be interesting. I mean, he's, he's a fantastic guy. And he's also written this book, Apollo's Arrow, which is a whole uh, book about the history of pandemics and how people react in response to them. I think he was saying um, this one's behaving exactly as we expected. And, you know, like he's been able to track every moment of it. And he, fi he finds it actually, he predicts a kind of roaring 20s movement. That's but exactly only in about, what he said. In four, is it four years' time, he says? It's not immediate. Is that right? He said, yeah, 24 he expects to be when this thing is properly history. Which isn't to say I'm not, I mean, I, we don't have much of an audience, but it's not to say for anyone listening <coughs> that by, I don't, I'm not going to make predictions, but we're not saying that by Christmas you're going to expect another Christmas like we've just had. Who knows what it's going to be like? No. But by 24, yes, it's going to be a thing in history, not a present thing. And he then predicts that we all go a bit wild and kind of go roaring 20s on it. I mean, yeah, you presumably, you, I don't know if you see BBC News every morning, but there's some economist has said the economy is like a coiled spring at the moment. You certainly had a lot of saving among a lot of people, although the worst off people tended to get even worse off. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, because people in fairly cushy jobs or pensioners, of course, didn't have an income hit. And if you're a pensioner, most of your discretionary spending was on social things. You know, because you, did, you, know, you didn't have a cost of going to work. You didn't have all those fixed costs. You probably had paid for your mortgage to some extent, if you're lucky. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're a richer pensioner, I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And so actually, you know, you've, you've actually saved money. And similarly, kind of white-collar skilled workers tended to have done quite well. Yeah. And so it's, it's fallen very unevenly on the populace, um, but, um, which, is, which is disturbing, I think. Yeah, um, the, the worrying thing is, um, for obvious logical reasons, the pandemic has disproportionately just taken some, has taken entire sectors of productivity out. You know, if, you, if all you do is serve alcohol at night, you've not worked for about a year no, now. I know, I know, I know, I know. So, um, 
I, and, and I don't know what to make of that. Is that just going to be a, a, a loss, you know, a hole in the net where, you know, you've been on furlough and, and, uh, until from March, basically until this March with maybe a couple of months of, of semi-employment in the middle. Um, what's to be made of that? I don't, yeah, exactly. And it's very interesting he says 2024. Yeah. Because mm. a lot of people are seeking to understand the future by looking at, you know, shorter term trends. That's interesting. He's suggesting that it's slightly slower. It's also worth remembering, by the way, that the roaring 20s were probably roaring for a tiny percentage of the population. Yes. It's always worth remembering that, that outrageous behavior is much more salient than boring behavior. Yes, and so trying to depict the Roaring Twenties in uh, Rotherham would be, look quite different. Than yes, it would. My, my grandfather had a glimpse of the Roaring Twenties because I think he went to Mrs. Mayrick's nightclub in London a few times in about 1922 or something. Yeah. And as a medical student, I think he had a little bit of Roaring Twenties. But then by something like, by something like 1924 he was, or 1926, he was an extremely hardworking GP in a South Welsh mining town. Wow, you know, so you know, you know, I don't think there were many flappers generally. I mean, obviously, there probably was, you know, there probably was a little bit of an element of uh, more fun post First World War, but it's worth remembering that what we the the imagery with which we depict decades is what's distinctive about the decade, not what's actually universal about the decade. So there was a great phrase someone said at J. Walter Thompson, which made everybody laugh. In many ways, the 1960s were much more influenced by the 1950s than they were by the 1970s, is what the person said. Now, what he meant was not influenced by, because obviously the 1960s can't be influenced by the 1970s. Um, But what he meant was actually there was much more about the, the 60s, which was 1950s. Mm-hmm. You know, men still wearing suits, you know, retired people wearing suits every day, right? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, um, a suit and tie in retirement. That, you know, for, you know, formality, you know, moral opprobrium, da-da-da. There was much more of that than there was Age of Aquarius. Yeah. You know, and it's the age of, you know, and actually outside San Francisco and a few cities, you know, you know, I mean, it was the 1970s were actually much more universally different from the 1950s. That was, you know, absolutely stark in terms of universal fashion, dress codes, everything else. Yeah. The 1960s were, to, you know, surprise, you know, the Beatles' long hair wasn't really very long, was it, in the, in the beginning of the 1960s? Well, it's funny, there's a, in the music world, there was a similar appraisal done a few years ago that said, um, despite the story that we have enjoyed, which is that, you know, the Beatles changed pop music forever. The actual revolutionary moment was uh, rap music because that was something that had never been done before. That was speaking, (coughs) you know, basically looped recorded music. Whereas, you know, the Beatles was part of an evolution of, you know, folk music that became... It was folk music hall and and pop, wasn't it? I suppose, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But as you know, rap, there was no predecessor for rap. It did just turn up in about the seventies or eighties. I'm not. Yes, sure. uh, the guy who's done work on that um, said that there were two big moments in music, which were kind of like Cambrian explosions and evolution yes. theory. He's a guy called Armand Leroy at I think it's Imperial or UCL, and he's done a lot of work on. And the two, the two kind of uh, seismic moments were the British invasion, mm-hmm. uh, which was more gradual, but but was also sort of welcome, if yeah. you like. And then he, he places it, run DMC's walk this way. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was attributed to the Sugar Hill gang. Yeah, um, everyone always thinks that's the first rap, don't they, really? But it is. I mean, it had been going on, supposedly it had been going on around them in New York for quite some time. 
But weirdly, it, uh, his belief is that it, it was walked this way by Run DMC, which was the kind of weird breakthrough thing that changed the direction of music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that would be, but, um, it, well, it's something to study and come back for, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, I'm trying to uh, think if there are any broad points to be covered before we go. Um, and no, there, there was one, but I'll leave it till next time. I want to see how the year unfolds uh, instead of just kind of boring everyone to death, making predictions that in a month we'll be able to see the, the result of or not, you know, so. Yes. Are you booked in for your vaccine yet? No, not yet. I'm 55, so I'm category nine or something. So it'll be April, May, I guess. Right, okay, yeah. But still, I saw the New York Times were very impressed with our progress. They said it looks like the UK might be able to have a wrap on this by by June in terms of the first everyone having a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. and that, that, would, that would even extend by June. It would even extend to people of sort of 20, 30, 40, would it? Yes, yeah, as I think well, I said. I'll, I'll send you the article over a, over an email. Um, but um, but yeah, so, so I think we'll see what the latter half of the... The year looks like I'm. I'm very upset about music festivals, but like you said, there's just no, crowding a load of people together. There's, it's unrealistic to say the least this year. Outdoors in the summer, you know, you, with with social distancing, I think you, you know you might be able to do it. Uh, the other problem is, of course, if you have fewer people, do the, do the tickets become absurdly expensive? What happens to all that kind of thing? And I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, okay. So just before we go, I've you know, restarted the recording because I was really keen to get your take on the Hanforth Parish Council uh, Zoom call. What I found interesting about it was that it's the first thing, it's the first time that older people have gone viral using technology, but not for misunderstanding it. No, it's actually fantastic because, I mean, one of the important things is that um, I've attended a meeting of Seven Oaks District Council uh, under lockdown. Now, I didn't pay attention for the entire duration of the meeting, but I had it on on the telly. And actually, um, as Dr. Johnson said, there are a hell of a lot of things in life which are worth seeing but not worth going to see. I think he said that of the, um, uh, the Giant's Causeway, you know, yeah. worth seeing but not worth going to see. And actually, I mean, local democracy can be quite heavily empowered by these kind of things. I'm amazed that they recorded it and that someone shared it. Who shared it? Do we know? We don't know who shared it, but I believe it was a couple of teenagers that made it go viral. I don't know how they got hold of it. And it is, it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, the, yeah. uh, uh, just the, the, the beauty of the whole thing. Um, and, and, of course, the, you know, the, and of course, it had the perfect viral thing because um, he, the angry man, refers to her by both her names. Yes, Jackie Weaver. <laughs> Jackie Weaver. You have no, you know, what is it? You have no right to be here, no Jackie Weaver. Here. Yeah. No authority here, Jackie Weaver. Now, that... Uh, Exactly like the guy chasing his dog in Richmond, Windsor Park or whatever it was, when the dog started chasing the deer, okay? Yeah. Um, that, the dog had an absurd name, which I can't remember, but it was something, you know. Fenton. Um, Fenton, okay. Now, there's, I think, a little secret in anything that goes viral, which is you almost need that uh, one absurd, the, the bizarre absurdity. Yeah. You know, the, and this is why I think it's so difficult to do rationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's rather Runs like great to go viral, don't they? And it's rather like the eye patch in David Ogilvy's Hathaway shirts ads. It's the gratuitous, absurd. You know, the gratuitous um, outlier. Yeah. And it's very difficult. To, it's very difficult to do that by design, which is why quite a lot of viral things happen purely by accident. Yeah. What I thought no. was interesting about the Hanforth Council was it was basically if. Uh, 
it's it's it achieved the same end result as hot fuzz without all those millions of dollars being spent on making it because you know it was the absurdity of british conservatism getting really angry and it was what, what did anybody delve into what they were really angry about so an extraordinary meeting had been called because i haven't dug into this i've watched it obviously yeah. but i haven't dug into the backstory nearly enough now my 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 understanding of it and I'll, i'm i'm a I'll, someone put me right if i'm wrong about this my understanding of it is that uh, the controlling members of that particular council were, were reluctant to call meetings for a very long time. And so someone complained and Jackie Weaver represents a kind of superordinate authority over councils ah. where they kind of like Ofsted, they come and, you know, watch them and make sure they're behaving properly. I think, I think that's what's going on there. So she was at the county council level. That's, I Effectively believe, intervening in the village or parish council or whatever it was. Yes. I see. And because nobody had called any council meetings, there was frustration. And the whole question then arose, okay, whether she had jurisdiction and authority or not yes. uh, over that particular meeting. Fantastic. Yes, you, you can't tell us how to run our council. Got it, got it, brilliant. I think, I think yeah. that's what it is. Maybe they'll intervene. I saw a nasty comment on Twitter the other day where someone was like, oh, I just found out Jackie Weaver was a Tory and now I hate her or something like that, you know. So I think you just grow up about stuff like that. But Yeah, that, I mean, that, that attempt, by the way, which didn't really happen to the same extent, it did to a, a bit, okay. But that, that idea that your politics is a significant part of your identity. Yes. Okay. Um... I mean, Dave Trott writes about this brilliantly. He said, I think his, his mum always voted Labour and his dad always voted Tory, but it might have been the other way around. And they both went off and he said, you know, why don't you just not bother to vote? Because you're just cancelling each other out anyway. And they said, it's very important we vote. But they never had any disagreements about anything. Um, it wasn't considered a deal breaker in the marriage. And this idea that somehow your political views is, um, uh, is, a, is a sort of identity, status and tribal thing, Mm-hmm. It's, it's very. It's also. I think it's actually interesting because I think it's a London thing. I mean, I don't know about. I'm not sure. But a lot of this, a lot of very odd behaviours, which we regard as characteristic of the modern world, okay, are actually disproportionately. We talk about problems of the rich or rich people's problems, but there are a lot of these things which you only really find in big cities. So that if you go to a rural area, mm-hmm. I was talking to a guy on Zoom, um, uh, who's moved out of New York to Bozeman, Montana. And he said, uh, you know, the thing that really surprises you in New York, Montana's a red state, but Bozeman's a bit of a kind of hippie alternative town, you know, like Livingston, which is just to the north. I mean, Montana attracts both sorts, if you like. And he said the thing that, you know, was weird for him as a New Yorker was that the main food shop, the kind of equivalent of Whole Foods that he goes to, is the co-op, which actually has its origins in Rochdale. So if you've got a co-op membership card in in the UK, you get 10% off if you go to a co-op in the... Uh, in the US, but they tend to be quite upmarket and they tend to be run as a cooperative by people who are quite alternative. And their local te- te- co-ops sort of run by transsexual hippies, basically. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the customer base and walk in with guns on their hips and happily coexist with the people running the co-op. You know, they buy their food, they coexist, everything's perfectly amicable and friendly. There's no, there's no issue. Yeah. And I you know I've often wondered: Is there something about high density living which just promotes, um, you know, it, it just promotes polarization? I've often wondered about it because you know I always noticed that in Birmingham, if you had a conversation about Brexit, nobody got particularly heated about it. Mm, 
you know. Whereas in London and Manchester, it was all... Do you think in Manchester, was it that? I mean, Manchester voted Remain, though not massively Remain. It was it was it was always a hot topic around here. Yeah, um, yeah that's interesting. Was, yes, you, yeah, Birmingham, uh, of course, was fifty fifty. So most people knew someone on both sides of the coin. Um, uh, but but some you know to some extent you know people you know if you go to any if you grew up in the country or you grew up in a rural setting, uh, then uh, you know the odd parish council meeting you know aside, most people coexist fairly happily with each other. Um, yes. Without without um, identity politics really intruding very much at all. Yeah. Um, and also, I, mean, I wonder if it's also a problem of higher education, which is higher education encourages people to solve for the general when they should be learning to solve for the specific. Yeah. I, so I, it, I, it, yeah. It, it, it over-elevates the status of context-free thinking, like ideology, for example, or dogma. Yeah. I think because most, most problems about uh, about bathroom use, let's say, are easily solved at the local level. They're very difficult to solve at the gen- at the generalizable level of you know um, a constitutional amendment, right? I th- no, I think yeah, I think the point you've hit up on there is absolutely one that I uh, I find challenging a lot of the time, which is that a lot of people think if there's as you say a specific problem, the only way to address it is through a policy intervention rather than even a, you know, a discussion. But yeah, the, the only thing that really changes things is policy and uh, the level of policy. So if you take it, for example, you know, what is the use of bathrooms among transgender people, blah, 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 okay. At an Ogilvy level, this does not keep me up awake at night because mm. I, I, I don't know whether we have any transgender people in the office or not, um, uh, which may mean I simply haven't noticed or I haven't asked or whatever. But it would not be difficult to accommodate absolutely everybody, giving some priority to the person in the minority position, which seems reasonable, by the way, okay? And to, and to work it out in a way that is entirely acceptable to everybody in the building, okay? That's not a difficult problem to solve, okay? You know, now you may say, okay, you know, you know, okay, you know, there are one or two bathrooms which, you know, are, are, I mean, I, I won't even try to speculate. I'm merely saying that... Actually, Taking it to a national level would be another challenge. Whereas, whereas legislating at the national level. So if you've got a problem which you can solve specifically, easily, why bother? Now, you see, the whole rights culture comes from top-down legislation being imposed on states. Mm-hmm. But I would argue at the state level, it's a very easy problem to solve, probably. But at the specific level, it, it, you know... And, and by the way, I speak as someone who would be... In t- I've, I've known quite a few uh, uh, transgender people outside the office. Entire, I, ne- I've never had a moment's... I hope I've never had a moment's antipathy to them yeah. and would respect their wishes very, very highly. And I don't think that would cause a problem within a business or within a restaurant or within a, anything else, okay? Yeah, yeah. There are a few issues which are difficult, which would be um, women's hostels, you know, women's refuges. Okay, those are going to be more problematic. Okay, I get that. Right? But actually, in most cases, you could find a specific solution without needing to find a general one. Yeah. So this is a case of a, perhaps a failure of what you might call, a, what, what's it the Catholic Church calls it? It was always a key thing in the European Union. It was called um, mm. where you devolve power as, as, as close as possible is is possible to the person who experiences the results of the action and it's called um oh jesus it, it actually comes from catholic theology which is decisions are taken as low down as possible and it's called um i was going to say transubstantiation it obviously isn't called that <laughs> do you remember this term in the european union and it was called um 
my mind's gone blank here. Um, I'll remember it after this thing's over. But you, you know, know there, to me, and I'll I'll, I'll overdub it. <laughs> you know, there is that interesting thing. You know, there are obviously things that can only be solved at the central level. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but if problems are more easily and more effectively and more voluntarily solved without the need for imposition at the local level, okay, yep. Um, That's the well, doctrine of minimal necessary force, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean and, and so the obsession with campaigning at a national level, it's also worth remembering that different parts of the country may wish to change at a different speed. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't expect, you know, I mean, okay, I mean, same-sex marriage, let's say, you know, acceptance has gone among people, I would guess, under 60. It's gone from nil to about 100%. Yeah. It isn't 100%, but it's probably 90-something. Okay, um, you know, uh, or eighty something um, uh, among uh, younger age groups. Well, do you expect nonagenarians to change their mind on it? You know, I, I don't know. You know, but it's, it's, it's rather like, it's rather like drink driving. Okay, there is a persistent group of people who still drink and drive, but yeah. the overall dominant social norm is not to do it. To my kids, it would be unthinkable that they allowed a friend even to get into a car if they were over the limit, okay? Now, to my parents' generation, not my parents. I'm just letting them off the hook here. My parents didn't drink and drive. Um, have I ever done it? Possibly I've been borderline once. That's as much as I've ever done. I've certainly never... I, I might have driven home once where I thought this might be a bit borderline. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, this, pay, this paves the way for what could be another hour and a half of discussion we might have to book in later in the year, which is, you know, one of the... the uh, the issues of last year in the US was, you know, race became a very loud issue. And part of what I was detecting from, you know, a lot of people's criticisms or or positions is if you can find one, uh, if you can find a handful of racist people, then the job isn't yet done and you need to still do more work to roll them back. And I was kind of Reminded of that when you were saying there's there are some people who persistently drink drive even though it's illegal the policy yes. can't yeah. just remove everyone. But if you think about it, then the obviously drink driving and racism have externalities. Okay? Yes. Um, uh, but it's I mean it's worth noting that actually the uh, statue removal when you put it to a vote doesn't receive majority support and doesn't even receive necessary majority support among the minority. It's intended most. Yes. To benefit. to benefit, yeah. Okay, because not unreasonably, I think people have other preoccupations and see there's a danger actually that we we distract ourselves with symbolic acts and forget to make real change. Yes. So I, I've spoken to academics who've in the environmental movement who said, you know, I invo- I was involved in a student video which encouraged people to turn off their mobile phone chargers when they weren't charging their phone. I would now like to apologise for having done this because it makes absolutely zero difference to carbon emissions, and it creates a symbolic act which makes people feel they're making a difference when they're not. Yep, exactly, exactly that. Okay? And um, so, you know, there is a danger in what's called crowding out genuinely benign behaviours by engaging in behaviours that just make you feel good. Yes. Um, And so that that business of not, you know, turning off your phone charger was pretty much, I mean, you know, it's pissing in the Pacific. Yeah. as far as making a difference goes. Have you heard of uh, Boyan Slat and the Ocean Cleanup Project? Tell me more. I, I know the name, but I don't know much much more about it. He's a, he's a very young kid and he went scuba diving in Greece when he was about 17 and was 
pissed off about all the plastic that he saw. And so by the age of 23, I think, he was chief exec of a company that was actually, had, had founded innovative uh, vessels that will clean up the Great Pacific garbage patch because they behave like rays. I don't know the ins and outs of the engineering. Oh, interesting. But I'm like, that, that I am a big advocate for that is get in and, and do something and, and make, make a difference and put all of your soul into it, as Joe Biden referenced in his uh, inauguration speech. Uh, instead of maybe, instead of protesting on, in Trafalgar Square one, on one day. Yeah, so I, I, there's, a, there's a problem with protest, by the way, which is it's very telegenic. It's not very representative. It's much easier to get TV coverage for a protest and looks great on the numbers. News if you're in London than it is if you're anywhere else, right? Yes. Okay, so, you know, large numbers of people in Birmingham can be really, really angry about something. You wouldn't get a Sky News crew there, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's also, it looks great on the news, and it's impossible to tell on the news how big the protest is. So don't get me wrong, a protest of half a million people is deeply significant, and a protest of a million people is highly significant, right? Mm -hmm. That does show widespread anger, albeit perhaps in a concentrated group. Because well, you could the people, show 30,000 and it would still look impressive. You, you, you can show a thousand, if, you, if you've got the right camera work, okay? Because no cameraman's told, go off and make this protest look totally underwhelming, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you focus on, on, in on the person who's... I spoke to Extinction Rebellion and I said, don't spray fuck on a war memorial, right? Because it makes you feel great in front of the 27 people who are watching, but it's terrible television. Yeah because you're actually losing support, okay? Spraying fuck on a war memorial, don't do it. Yeah, you're trying to gain support, you're building so no, 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 no cameraman and no helicopter is there to say, let's make this, let's make this protest look totally underwhelming. Yeah. And so it, is, it, it, it suits, in a sense, the press and protesters connive to create media events. And the people who go on protests are generally unrepresentative of the population as a whole. Apart from anything else, a lot of people have jobs, right? Yes, yeah. You know, let's be honest about this, okay? If it isn't at the weekend, you know, there are a lot of people who are working at the weekend. There are a lot of people who don't like protests. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I can barely conceive of, you know, because I don't like crowds, right? I, yeah. really, ha I really hate crowds. Um, and so I think, there's, I think there is an issue there, which is that, uh, that, that protest, you know, there is an issue, which is should you actually just <laughs> say to the news, look, you're overcovering this thing because we, we're, now, we're now in danger of crying wolf, which is that the really important thing okay, um, are being drowned out by the telegenic thing. Yeah. And, and, and I buy, you know, I buy the, um, uh, you know, I buy the environmental argument, I buy the Black Lives Matter argument. They're both highly important things. N neither of them is um, uh, a... Uh, one of the things that does annoy me is I, I, I actually actively want to hear uh, opinions of people of colour on what life's like, right? Because that's a perspective I don't always understand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, I, I work with someone who is uh, Afro-Caribbean by ancestry, Brit, um, and uh, I, you know, both of us had actually been stopped by the police totally arbitrarily while driving uh, in the previous year. Okay, now of course, you know, that, uh, someone did say that you know maybe you look black from behind, <laughs> you know, um, but it, uh, my reaction, of course, totally, re you know. This cop's an idiot. He had a, why did he flag me down with a torch and then search my boot? Right? Yeah. What's going on here? Right? And then the other time, the cop accused me of not wearing a seatbelt when I was wearing a seatbelt. He also stopped me because I was speeding. And I said, look, the only reason I was speeding is I was driving along at 30 miles an hour. 
and you kept flashing your lights, and I assumed you were a really impatient driver. So I started going at 37. I, it was dark. I couldn't see he was a cop guy. They he didn't put his lights on. The so they manufactured the offence, then accused me of, of not wearing a seatbelt. I said, well, I was. And, and it was a completely bullshit thing. Now, obviously... Um, and then the funny thing was, I, my, my wife said, you know, don't, 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 I was driving my father-in-law's car. Mm-hmm. And my wife said, you know, don't, don't tell my dad about this. I'd just rather know, not know that you were stopped by the police. I said, well, why not? You know, and, and yeah. I, told, I told my wife's dad, he said, exactly the same thing happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so there's got on up he, that car. And bear in mind, he's, you know, he was then a 63-year-old civil servant or something, right? Yeah. He said, no, the, he said the cop did exactly the same thing. They flashed their lights, made me speed, stopped me for speeding, and then sort of, what? Anyway, our reaction, of course, being white, was this guy's a complete idiot, right? What the hell's going on? You know, should we complain about this? Because it's now, you know, uh, you know, it's now, you know, it's now clearly we've got some evidence that this isn't a one-off. Now, obviously, my colleague would regard it as racist, okay? And by the way, I mean, it might be or it might not be, because cops do stop people weirdly anyway, even if you're white or middle-aged or whatever, you know, in my case. But... It's really, you know, understanding other points of view and other contexts. This is why, you know, having diversity is actually valuable in a business for reasons other than ethical reasons. It's actually yes. valuable to benefit for a wide range of viewpoints. You know, ad agencies don't have many people who've grown up in a genuinely working class household, really. Yeah, again, Steve Harrison okay. makes that point, doesn't he? So. Yeah, absolutely right, yeah. And you, you recommended Paul Burke to me, and, and I've spoken to him twice now on this podcast, and he said the same thing. He said in the 80s, the way in was very different. I was driving the vans at Abbott Mead Vickers and became a copywriter. Whereas, you know, now you uh, would presumably have been quite well educated and then go to Hounslow or Watford or something like that. So No, I mean, uh, one of the creative directors of Simon Palmer was, um, I'm just trying to think who, which one it was, was a motorcycle dispatch rider who delivered things to ad agencies and then just said, what goes on in here then? And how do yeah. I get a job in here? Yeah. And, um, uh, and, so we have the pipe at Ogilvy, which is a means of deliberately non-graduate recruitment. I mean, we don't exclude graduates from it because, of course, they're, what is it, 50% of the population, frankly. Yeah. But we don't require a graduate degree. We recruit on general interestingness and, and uh, range of background. Yeah. And, uh, you know, also people in ad agencies are too young because ultimately the way in which you make decisions and your priorities in life do change when you get older. Yeah. And so, you know, having ads for pensions written by, you know, I hate saying this, but when you're 27, you don't really, you know, any more than the bloke understands what your first period is like. You know, a 27-year-old doesn't really understand the whole pension thing. Well, that's the, that's the argument, isn't it? It's like if we're going to invest in the idea that to understand a certain demographic, you have to be of the certain demographic. No, that's not, not true. No, yeah. Sometimes but, but, you can understand it better because you're from outside. It's really complicated. There's a Henry James short story called The Real Thing, which is about this, which is there are people modeling to play the part of aristocrats for a book illustrator. And the, and the, the models who are working class are better at playing aristocrats than the aristocrats are. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, 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 it's years since I've read it, but I think that's, I think that's what happened. So no, I mean, I mean, actually, you would weirdly, if you're working on Sandro, you may not want to have an all-female team because blokes will ask questions which women wouldn't think of asking because you're too close. Yeah. So this is where it gets complicated. You know, you don't, you don't want. Um, but but at the same time, you know, I mean, <laughs> having people who know what it's like to be skint is pretty useful. 
Well, you know. I think the, the, the point I was, uh, suppose I was on the precipice of making is we have a kind of youth-obsessed industry, certainly, if not a youth-obsessed world. But um, was it you, it was either you or Paul or Steve who pointed out that the average age of the first, uh, the first time buyer of a car brand new is 54. And, you know, uh, we usually, people of that age are, have been phased out of the industry. If you think about it, it's a fundamental electric car problem which is the people, until we have loads of... This is why uh, Elon is actually solving the electric car problem by eventually creating a large market for second-hand electric cars. Because the people most inclined to buy an electric car um, are, you know, probably lean younger, and yet younger people don't buy new cars. So you had a catch-22 problem at yes. the beginning. Yes, I would bite one someone's hand off for a Tesla, but I cannot afford one. Fortunately, with my Bitcoin, thank you, Elon. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the, but no, I mean, the interesting thing is you, you, you will be able to afford one in a few years. Yeah. Uh, yeah for, because they'll uh, be kicking around. I mean, the other one weird one is about, you know, ask, and asking ability to basically think yourself into the mindset of an alien. And that can be what I mean, a resident alien or an alien is a really useful mental technique because so much of what we do is kind of instinctive. Like what I should do really I think, going forward, is buy that Renault Twizy, you know, that one-seat electric car for 10 grand, and use that for all my trips under kind of 10, 15 miles, 20 miles, which is the vast bulk of my trips. And then rent a Range Rover three times a year. You know, that's what I should do. Why don't I do that? I don't know. I don't really know. Well, maybe that'll be a model going forward. There's a market for it, so... Yeah, I mean, it certainly, it certainly makes me think that, you know, if I could rent, a, you know, one of those little one-seater things and just scuffle around for my three-mile journeys, yeah. it might be a good way to do things. But there are so many questions, range anxiety, that actually, you know, what's so interesting is that, um, I, actually, there's a guy who made exactly that same point. He said, I, you know, I'm actually a massive car guy, okay? I'm comparatively rich, but I was in my 50s before I bought the first car from new. Yes, yeah. But I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you follow Andrew Yang at all. Yes, interesting guy. Yeah, yeah very interesting yeah. guy. Uh, him, uh, he, and many others are convinced that you know, electric or not, uh, some you will not be the thing that's driving your car in uh, ten to fifteen years. We've got to be careful about that because one of the complicated things is we enjoy driving. Yes. Um, uh, it, it looks as though you know it's a kind of flow thing. And under certain circumstances, we do enjoy driving. So if you had the actual thing where driving yourself was bad, you can admittedly, now this gets complicated because then you add safety features which make it very hard to crash. Does that mean people start driving like idiots? Mm. Because they know that, that everybody ends up driving close to the edge of the envelope, which would strike me as inherently terrifying. Yeah. So, I, I mean, we're going to have to solve some really weird problems because... If you think about it, if, if, if you could, if you, if you put me in a Formula One car, I'd drive like a total coward, right? I'm not interested in the high-performance Teslas because like the plan, um, even if I could afford one, because I'm not good enough a driver. I'm one of the few people who does admit, look, I'm quite a good driver in terms of safety, comfort, and, you know, I can probably do a, you know, I, I can judge an overtaking maneuver well and so forth, but I'm not a good enough driver to take advantage of 0 to 60 in 2.9 seconds. You know, yes. that's just... Um, uh, so, you know, one of the things is if you build in safety features that you feel you can't crash, but you can drive like an idiot, does everybody drive like an idiot? Or do social norms pe mean that people still continue to drive like civilized people just for reasons of comfort? Do you need to massively restrict electric cars for young people who probably would drive like idiots? 
if they were given the opportunity to do so without the risk of accident. Wow. So, okay, yeah, uh, I was going to... I was going to say there's so much more you could go on to there, which is that if you have a car that is semi-automated, is it basically like an elaborate seatbelt where it prevents you from uh, doing any serious maneuvers? It catches you if it senses you're trying yes, uh, yeah. to accelerate too quickly. So exactly, people actually counterbalance their driving becomes more dangerous to yes. uh, counter as a counterweight. Uh, and that, it's called, I've forgotten his name, it's a Scottish Canadian uh, academic who first came up with that theory, which is that you, you know, it, it, essentially there's a compensatory behavior whenever you introduce a safety feature in a car. And anti-lock braking. Now, I don't quite buy this, by the way, um, because I don't think anti-lock braking changes my behavior because it, I only activate it about once every three years. Yeah. Um, it's only about once every three years that my car, I, I'm aware of my car practicing anti-lock braking. So I don't, I, I don't quite understand why anti-lock braking hasn't had more beneficial effects because I don't think it is compensatory behavior. And I'm not quite sure what it might be. Of course, anti-lock braking under certain circumstances may be worse. Like on snow, it's worse. So I don't know what the reason is why anti-lock braking hasn't reduced fatalities. In you know, and, and that's a really interesting one to me because I don't think people go, "Hey, I've got anti-lock braking, so I'm going to just drive like an idiot and tailgate <laughs> yeah, yeah. people." Um, but if but if the entire car was always constraining the stupid driving. Then yeah, you know, yeah. Well, of course, people people then no longer know how to drive. Quite simply, because the fundamental um, thing of driving, which is tacit judgment, yes, has been eliminated and replaced by a machine. Yeah. So what you'd get is, you know, the the image is if you're pushing against something that provides that resistance, if that you just push as hard as you can, yeah, would push too far, yeah. So. And then in exceptional circumstances like snow driving, where the algorithm doesn't do a very good job, mm. you'd end up with total catastrophe. I mean, you do anyway to some extent. Yeah, but it, it is. It is a really interesting question, and, I, and um, uh, but uh, you know, I would be unhappy if if all cars were self driving. Um, I think. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well, go on. I mean, there are certain things like parking at someone else's house, which will ultimately require social intelligence, won't they? Yeah. Uh, in the sense that, oh, look, that's Dave's car. Now Dave lives here, so I can park behind him. Whereas if I park behind those people, I bet they'll leave earlier than I will. So I'll, I'll only have to move my car while pissed. You know. I mean, an AI pessimist would say you're just being, you're underestimating how clever artificial intelligence is going to get about those things. Uh, yes, I think that's fair. That, that there will always be certain things where you want your judgment to override the assumptions of the algorithm. Yeah, yeah it's definitely. Funny, RFD has just re uh, read the three popular books by Yuval Noah Harari, you know, Sapiens, Homo Deus, and the 21st century. And so now every time he comes on a Zoom call, he's like, so how can we best prepare for AI? What can we do about this? So, yeah. So, so the, bit, the big worry is that um, essentially it's like agriculture. It's actually, it, it turns out, I mean, it's worth remembering that you end up with, a, you can end up with a, a nightmarish bureaucracy is actually almost worse than a tyranny. Yeah. Because the tyrant can change his mind and might be even tolerably nice, or you can make friends with the tyrant. But a bureaucracy, actually, you literally get trapped in a, uh, in a web that's inescapable. That's the joke with the Vogons in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, isn't it? They're just bureaucrats. They're just bureaucrats. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll see. But I think uh, yeah, RFD's worry is that music will be outsourced to artificial intelligence. And I take the line that my... When I asked my brother about where should I buy a house and what about prices going up and down, 
Um, and he said, well, if your house price is going down, the odds are all of them are at the same time. So relatively, it's not a problem, but it's a Do you want, do you want a tip on that one? Problem. Say uh, be- beachfront or seafront, that's where you can buy. And the reason is that if you have flexible working, first of all, the population is retiring. and A lot of people want to retire by the sea. Secondly, creative people will move to the seaside. They won't really move to the countryside in the same readiness. Okay. Third thing, my brother did the maths. If you divide the UK's land mass by its population, everybody gets like three quarters of an acre. Maybe it's more. It's quite a lot of land, actually. There's no land shortage. Yeah. There's a land shortage close to city centres, which is actually a transport shortage sort of thing. Or, you know. but, the, but actually, if you divide the UK's coastline by its population, everybody gets three quarters of an inch each. Wow. So if you want to invest in property, actually, coastal property... Now, interestingly, Deal, which is where I've got a little flat as a bolt hole, uh, had the hottest rental market in the UK in the last wow. few months. Because it's commutable to London, so people know I can float down here and I'll still be able to make it into London two days a week. You know, it's about, what is it, an hour and a half on the train, is it? Maybe it's... Uh, uh, one hour 22. One hour 22 to St Pancras, okay, from Deal, okay? Um, and... Um, uh, I can do London for two days a week. If it's off-peak, it's not that expensive, you see. Bloody expensive, you've got to be in for 9 a.m. If you, To be honest, if you say, look, I'm going to do a Zoom call at 9, I'll be in the office around 11, then actually your commute's pretty cheap. And if they introduce, as I'm campaigning for, the off-peak season ticket, which is a season ticket which gives you like three, off, three to four off-peak journeys a week really cheaply, and if you want to make a peak journey, you just pay a premium of 15 quid, Right. Okay, the off-peak season ticket is a total killer product, right, for flexible working. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, I think, or a carnet would be an equivalent thing, an off-peak carnet and a, and a, and a peak upgrade. Um, now, what, what you might see is that those coastal places do really, really well. Well, um, what we'll have to do is we'll have to make this a little cut-down clip with a really clickbaity. Where Where, where, do, where do Manx go to the seaside? Where do we go to the seaside? Yeah. I mean... Um, in general, probably abroad, but if you had to go within the confines of this country. I mean, last last year we went down to Woolacombe, so we went all... Oh, you went miles away. There must be good west, northwest coast. And North Wales was where I spent all my weekends yeah, growing up. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say, so, yeah. Um, uh, we, yeah, we were in uh, Anglesey, uh, Red Wharf Bay. So that's where I spent a lot of time growing up. But uh, but yeah, we'll we'll make this a little video of you know Rory Sutherland predicts best place to buy a house and see if we can just drive a load of views. To no, it. so lakefront and seafront has real scarcity, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know ultimately now when you think about it, of those three quarters of an inch per person, there are a hell of a lot of places on the coastline where you can't build a house and you can't buy one. So it's even more scarce. It's even more scarce. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so back to the initial point, which was about the relative price of if your if if your house is going down they're all going down yes yeah, so if, if house prices are going down you want to wait because um, obviously this is a case of intergenerational perceptual failure this is what i mean about diversity okay yeah which is that all the people who are living in london who dominate the media and who dominate politics because that fa- let's face it we used to buy an mp a house didn't we basically yeah. right oh are you an mp right let us buy you a house okay yeah right so they completely failed to spot or at least care about the fact that for the future population and for the very young, rising house prices weren't a bonanza. They were a bloody disaster. Yeah. And actually, they're a disaster, actually, for most of your life. Because if you want to upsize, upscale, it increases the gap. 
Wow. So, so I joke, it gets wider every time. So the only people for whom it's a real beneficiary are people who are thinking of their house as an investment for its um, exchange value, not yep. people thinking of their house for use value. And then we had a further distortion I pointed out, which is that the buy-to-let market and the overseas investment market in London massively encouraged builders to build um, um, complexes of two-bedroom apartments. Now, two-bedroom apartment is brilliant if you want to, if you're a buy-to-let guy looking to sell to rent to a flat share, right? Yep. It's useless for a family and it's useless for an individual. Yes. Um, and so, and, and you know, it's okay for a couple without kids, just about. I think, um, but but actually, really, the two-bedroom uh, flat is a useless form of accommodation, uh, which uh, in a high-rise complex, which has been overly. Um, expanded because of a mixture of planning law and um, distortions in the market because houses aren't being bought by the people who want to live in them. They're bought by the people who want to exploit the rental opportunity. Yeah, I think the uh, Department of Housing uh, have been pulling their hair out for the last 10 years over this, so... Yeah, you know, it's really, really interesting because you, yeah, as you say, you want homes to be homes and not investments that then price people out of having homes. Yeah, but our failure to notice this earlier and our failure to do something about it in London. I mean, maybe you know, maybe actually, Manchester isn't so big a city, to be honest, that you can't be a bit rural if you feel like it and still travel into work. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that. I mean, I maybe unfair. It's like Phoenix, okay? It could expand in all four directions. The road network's huge. You know, if you want to live in downtown Phoenix, you live in downtown Phoenix. If you want to live eight miles out in a cactus ranch, you know, or twenty miles out, you can kind of do that and travel. I know what you mean? Like David Mitchell said, "I live in London. Getting to anything like the countryside is a three-hour round trip." Uh, that is exactly uh, yeah. Uh, that's why actually suburbia is slightly undervalued because the one thing about suburbia is you can get to nice countryside quite fast. Yeah, um, and you can get to rural and spacious pretty quickly. And you're absolutely right. If you live in central London, the countryside is extremely inaccessible. You know. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, also, by the way, it's more inaccessible than you think. Because if you live in West London, you're more or less forced to go out on the M40. If you live in South East London, you go out on the A2. You, you know, if you live in, in, in North East London, you go out on the A1 or the A, you know, or the, uh, the sorry, the M11 or the A13, right? Mm-hmm. So the countryside you're free to discover is slightly determined by where you are. So everybody in Deal, which is in Kent, basically all the DFLs, which stands for down from, down from London, all the DFLs basically come from Orpington, Bromley, you know, Greenwich, shoot, yeah. you know, Blackheath. You know, you you, don't, you you get a few people who are from southwest London, but very few. The yeah. southwest London people go to Dorset, you see, because they go in a straight line. Yeah. And, and that's a Dan Ariely point, that we hate travelling in the wrong direction, even when it makes sense to do so. Wow. And that, yeah. I always laugh about it, which is, I mean, I, one of the things I do make a point, which is that the, the downsides to being somewhere... No, no, you want about 20 or 30 really interesting friends kicking around. You know, you want a few interesting people. I'm not suggesting you move to the Outer Hebrides, right? Not that they aren't interesting. There are just not very many people there. Um, but the one thing I do say is that in consumption terms, unless you're into massive crowded events or Tinder, okay, right, the social disadvantage to not being in a large city in terms of consumption mm-hmm. has been significantly diminished. First of all, it's not like you can't, you know, it's, I mean, I, I'm guessing the, the restaurants in Chilton come hardy are probably, you know, pretty interesting, are they? You know, right? And if you, you know, you can find places. Now, yeah, when I was a kid, the restaurant scene in London was like five times more interesting than the restaurant scene in Monmouth. 
you know. Yeah. Monmouth had a very good Indian restaurant, you know. Da, da, da. Now, Monmouth, which is where I grew up, has a restaurant scene which is satisfactory and actually quite interesting for a 40-year-old. Plus, you can drive to these country pubs and, you know, there's the Hardwick near Abergavenny, which is one of my favourite restaurants in Britain, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so, actually, the foodie scene, if you've got a car and you live in a town of 15, 20,000 people, is, yeah, okay, it's, I, I can't get a Burmese meal. You know, I acknowledge that, right? Okay, you know, well, I think there is one Burmese restaurant somewhere up the Edgware Road. London, okay. And, the, you know, I, Lebanese is a bit constrained and Korean is a bit constrained, right? But basically, I've got enough choice. I, I, you know, one branch of Pizza Express is as good as 27. You know, an awful lot of London is actually replication of things that don't need to be replicated. Yeah, it's a copy and pasted city. Uh, it's copy and paste sort of thing. And actually, also, of course, you've got to add the internet. So, you know, it's not like you can't get a latte, Okay. So, to some extent, the differentiation... I'll give you an example of this. Um, I, I'll be honest with you, you're a bank, right? Mm-hmm. I went to Manchester in the, ni- in the early 90s, and compared to London, it was a bit shit. Yes. Okay, I'll be absolutely that. harsh with you. No, you everyone know, around here says that as well. So. Yeah, I, I, I'll be absolutely honest with you, okay? So, I went to Manchester, I also went to Sheffield, and we were going to miss the train back to London, and I said to the guy we were visiting in Sheffield, where's the best place to uh, stay in Sheffield? And he said, Leeds. Okay. Now, first of all, chains raise the bar for everybody. I'm very pro-chain because Starbucks says that if you want to compete with us, you've got to be at least as good as Starbucks. Yes. Previously, you could make a business selling totally shit coffee. And and Travel Lodge or Holiday Inn Express say, look, if you want to be a hotel, that's fine, but you've got to be at least as good as us, right? Yes, they set the bar everywhere. They set the bar, and so you can't afford to be shittier than a Holiday Inn Express, and a Holiday Inn Express is actually pretty good, right? Yeah. You know, there were hotels that were absolutely awful. I've stayed in a few of them, which survived just because of their location, right? Okay? And literally, they were awful. I mean, literally awful, right? (laughs) You know, sticky carpets, the bed collapsed. I'm quite fat, but I mean, the bed was two singles joined together and it collapsed in the night, and it turned out it was propped up by some suitcase or something. I mean, really, really awful. Yes. And um, that doesn't happen anymore because the, the greatest value of chains like McDonald's is they kill off the worst. Yeah. And then that means you can confidently eat out on the expectation that what I'm going to get is going to be okay. Um, and so looking at it that way, I went to Manchester and I have to say, I thought in 1991, I thought, this is a bit of shit. Yeah. You know, and I spoke to people who lived in Manchester who moved to London. They said, well, I went back to Manchester. My daughter's now at Manchester University. I thought... This place is actually really nice. It's pretty good. You know, yeah. the food scene is really, really interesting. The kind of, you know, the nightlife's really interesting. Um, you know, it's not like nobody knows how to, you know, there aren't any baristas, right? Yeah. And actually, the, the relative, and then of course, you've got the internet anyway, right? So if you want mm-hmm. to buy something really weird, okay, um, there's practically, I'm, I'm just trying to think of things you can buy in London which you can't buy online, uh, is a vanishingly small category. Right, yes, they're, the de- they're the destinations. It's the National Gallery. It's things like this. You know, those are the. If I go to London, that's what I. Th- or at least if I think of London, that's what I think of. Everything yeah. else that is also here just evaporates in my mind. But that doesn't require your presence five days a week. I mean, no, that's that, the, you know, that's the brutal. Good, yeah. That's the brutal truth of it. You see, and me, I said maybe high speed two is a good idea now because there'll be loads of people who live in Manchester or just outside Manchester and tottle into London. You know, once a week. Maybe it makes sense. Yeah. You know, maybe it's actually, maybe weirdly that um, Provided this each pandemic... Provided each 80 quid. Well, yeah. Nobody's talked about that, have they? Exactly, no. yeah. 
And so the, you know, the pricing of this thing is just as important as anything else. Yeah. So the interesting thing there is that, um, uh, you know, what I find really interesting there is that, um, uh, you know, undoubtedly the, um, now, early in your working life, the opportunity thing is key, but Zoom replaces that to some extent. Yes. I mean, in some ways, Zoom is better because I've attended talks that were at, hosted by Raleigh, Duke University in Raleigh-Durham, okay? There's no way I get my finance department to say, okay, here's an air ticket for Raleigh so you can go to a conference on insect epidemiology, right? Yeah. Okay, that's not going to happen. So in some ways, you know, meeting people, whether it's romantic partners or possible business opportunities. Um, but equally, I was talking to my great friend at Coke, um, Sarita, and she was saying, we're doing a round of hiring in global marketing. And there is no presumption that you move to Atlanta anymore. None. Yeah. Okay? So, you know, they're, they're hiring all over the place overseas for those jobs. And legally, again, it's a bit complicated overseas, but they're multinational. They know how to do that. Okay? Yeah. And they said previously, the presumption was, if you're going to work for Coke, you're going to uproot your family, and you're going to move to Atlanta. Now, that's a huge limitation on who Coke can hire, by the way. Yeah. You know, I quite like to move to Atlanta. I think it's no, a great no place. <laughs> um, funnily enough, those southern cities, if you like a good bit of ethnic diversity, those southern cities actually seem to make it work better than the northern ones do. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, Houston, Atlanta, Houston's the most diverse city in the United States, I think, ethnically. And I, I, I love those cities. They're, they're not fashionable places to like, but I really, really like them. I think that time is coming, though. I, I think so. Atlanta is the fastest, has the highest Tesla ownership of any of any place outside California, by the way. And I believe the political pundits also say that Texas will be a blue state in about 10 or 15 years. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's had Arizona as well because you get it's migration from California. Yeah. Although when people move to red states, they tend to become a bit redder. Yes. Um, in that, you know, uh, you sort of, well, it's partly, I suppose, you, you, you as, as someone said to me once when there was some political uh, argument, you know, um, you know, my neighbours in Texas, uh, you know, they're a bit more conservative than me, they're a bit redder than me, they're a bit more pro-gun than me, but they're totally reasonable people. You know, yeah. the idea that you should take some git with a Confederate flag on his hat and use that to demonise, you know, what is, you know, a population of about 50 million isn't yes. really fair. You know. Well, again, it's the same point that we were previously on, isn't it? Which is that uh, we've arrived at a point where people think that your political choices are your entire identity. And it's worth noting that for, I imagine the majority, I haven't got the data, uh, people's political choices don't change throughout their life. They're fixed. You're either a Labour or a Conservative, and then there's a fraction in between who change. So for the two camps that never change, you can't just say, well, you know, they're on this determined moral path that they can't deviate from, but I can see from the outside. No, and I, th I think, you know, one of the problems with those people who don't change their mind is, of course, you become taken for granted. and Your opinion gets disproportionately little. You really saw um, that in the 2016 US election, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got these voters. I don't need to concentrate on. Of know, course, what you do do is you try and maximize turnout among them. Yeah. That's the political strategy which Karl Rove adopted for the re-election of George W., I think. Oh, just, it's just maximize no, the... Nobody's changing their mind. Get them to turn up. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very smart. Uh, look, it's gone past 12, so we should probably um, leave it there. I imagine you've got other stuff to do. I'm very grateful for the amount of time you Pleasure, absolute time. pleasure. So I'm sure we'll do it again in six months and we'll have loads more to talk about then. Absolutely fantastic. All right, I have a great day and I'll see you. Thanks ever so much, you too. Bye-bye, bye-bye. Bye.